Milton? What? I don't remember any Milton. Fuck! He has been with us the whole time! Somebody named Milton has been with us the whole time? Yes! I don't think so. I think I would have noticed if a guy named Milton has been with us. going on a mission um we're going to be doing uh james gunn's the the suicide squad that is very important to this double and um robert aldridge's the dirty dozen from 1967 uh, i think um and there's only one person i want beside me on this death-defying mission um he's actually becoming quite the podcaster lately as you would have heard him on the um the latest one of the later um pub uh cobwebs episodes and of course on Schlockenor. It's, of course, the great Preston Mitchell. Hey, how's it going? I got there in the end. <laughs> uh, doing well, Lindsay. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Um, yeah, I was really happy to get you back on. And when you suggested this double, I was like, well, yes, yes, we will do the Suicide Squad and the Dirty Dozen. And I will be very, very happy with that. And now, even before we started recording, we were like trying to get into the movies so um i'm really <laughs> looking forward to getting into it but how have you been more importantly oh uh, i'm doing really well uh uh down here in texas uh at the beginning of the month we were actually hit uh especially in uh the dallas fort worth area we were just hit with like a kind of a bad snowstorm um fortunately uh it wasn't as uh as as rough as last year's uh, that one lasted for uh, about a week, if I recall correctly. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but uh, you know, our state is is very. Uh, if you've seen if you've seen enough westerns, uh, which I've been watching a lot lately, just a lot <laughs> of tough guy movies, uh, which spawned this double. Um, oh yeah. I, uh, we, we're definitely not built for that kind of uh, weather, you know. But but you know, so far so so good. You know, Texas strong, and uh, here we are. No, that's the one thing I love. It well, I can't imagine what it's like to live in a snowstorm. Just where I lived and grew up, um, I know cold. I just don't know that kind of cold. So this, that's I still imagine. <laughs> but I love the idea of Texas, one of the stronger, strongest. Um, I like to think of themselves as one of the strongest like states and almost its own thing. And but as soon as it snows, it's all like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, we we like snow to us is like is like our Godzilla. Like we just erupt into onomatopoeias, <laughs> but it's very much in the English language, set free with a lot of expletives, much yes. like the first movie we'll talk about. <laughs> oh yes, very much so. Um, I forgot how much I was giggling at the fact that how the um title credits were going into the first movie. <laughs> I was just like, oh yes, oh my god. Um, yes, and Aldous, it's like Aldous Elba being the strongest man in the world until a rat comes along that is Texas and snow, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, I identify with Idris Elba in, in, in so many ways in this movie. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
that tells you anything about me. Uh, oh, that does, and I love it. Um, <laughs> no, but as I said before, we heard you on Cobwebs, which was great because you got to talk about uh, Christian Sturges, um, the Lady Eve, which was absolutely a joy to listen to. So, um, thank you. No, it was great. So if you haven't checked that episode, please do. It's a great episode. Uh, Daniel and Mitchell just goofing on Barbara Stanwyck and uh, Henry Fonda. And it's a, a pure joy. Um, and with that, since I'm kind of really wanting to get into this episode, we're going to start with uh, James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. Um, of course, Curtin's opening. Preston, what do you show as your first trailer for The Suicide Squad? So for my first trailer, uh, I want to start the evening off with uh, like letting them like letting everyone like begin this double with a comfort movie trailer um, mm. and uh, kind of let people in on the absurdity of what's going on uh, as kind of a precursor. And I'm going with Scott Pilgrim versus the World from 2010. Yes. Scott Pilgrim. Hi, I was thinking about asking you out, but then I realized how stupid that would be. That's okay. You should just sign for this, all right? So do you want to go out sometime? I say yes, will you sign for your damn package? So yeah, eight o'clock? Come to this Battle of the Bands thing. You have a band. Yeah, we're terrible. One, two, three, four! Mr. Pilgrim! I'm Ramona's first evil ex-boyfriend. What? Wait, we're fighting over Ramona? Didn't you get my email explaining the situation? I skimmed it. Mm -mm. Um, I love this. Um, I love this movie. I think it's a great trailer. Um, as soon as you as soon as you sort of said, Oh, I'm thinking of this, I'm like, oh god, I'm never gonna watch Scott Pilgrim again. Um, because it's well, that kind of movie. It's one of those movies where you if it comes on TV or anywhere you see five minutes of, you're going to watch the rest of it because it's that confident. Oh, it's so it's so good. It's uh, and I'm happy to hear you say that. Uh, just because I was actually, um, I, so I saw this in the theater. Um, back in 2010, I was actually just starting. Uh, I was in the middle of like my high school years, mm. and uh, I saw it with a couple of friends, uh, bo both of whom were very meh about the movie, and I just walked out just loving it. Uh, I, I'm. You know, I I'm, I might may have mentioned this um on a previous uh, Schlock and I episode, but. Uh, I'm a big Edgar Wright fan. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. Uh, and at this time, we didn't know that he could do like other things besides satire, you know, because of the TV show Spaced and of yes. course, uh, Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, both of which I grew up with, you know, seeing time and time again on Comedy Central. And I just loved his sense of humor with Simon Pegg. But here he was kind of like his first time being let off a leash, so to speak, without Pegger Frost um, and uh, adapting a very, very indie comic, um, very popular with um, at my high school, uh, <laughs> the, anim the anime kids, uh, yeah. as it were, because uh, it combines a lot of that. And me being a big Matrix fan and a comic book fan and a comic book movie fan, it pressed all those buttons. Uh, like, it's just. I mean, if you don't know the plot of Scott Pilgrim, please go out and watch Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> that's that's because it's it's kind of like I remember walking out of the theater just elated at what I had just seen. The combination of of uh, this uh, Michael Sarah's like kind of teen angst, mm. but being told through the language of the pop culture that he was indoctrinated in. And as I've gotten older, watching the movie, um, it 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 really does play on so many of my geek buttons but the older I get the more truth I see in the film uh which is 
which is speaks to Edgar Wright. I think so many of his movies are so brilliantly layered. Um, and you see that with uh, his newest film, uh, oh, Last Night in Soho. I was going to ask you if you'd seen it since you're such a big, since you're such a right fan, I was wondering if you'd seen Last Night in Soho. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, def- I definitely saw it and I really enjoyed it. And it's definitely a movie that uh, I'm curious to watch again uh, because uh, it's the first movie of his, um, out of his really impressive run where I had problems with it, yes. but I still enjoyed it. Um, and I think a rewatch, because I've heard from so many people um both you know uh in on social media and also in my personal life uh, rewatches of that movie really do improve it and so i'm curious uh, how it how it le- leads on cuz even on a first time watch it's very clear that edgar wright is just a master of buried guns and um playing with nostalgia and that movie is is kind of the first time that he really taps into what's wrong with nostalgia and yeah you know the first time i saw it i had um, yeah, I had also problems with it because it's the ending that doesn't feel like it meshes. Something about that first watch, I was like, going, hang on a minute. Um, but yeah, no, um, <laughs> it is. It does actually, when you watch it again, it does feel like it's fitting more into place because I think you know where the story is going and then you know what the points of views are in the movie, which I think there are, I need probably need to do a show on it eventually. because I. Um, but there are multiple point of views happening at the same time and that does lead into the whole nostalgia thing. Um, but yeah, I, I it's a movie that you can easily go back to. Um, same with uh, Scott Pilgrim, because I remember it when it came out, there was a co- kind of a collective meh, because I think people were expecting the satire. They were expecting another Hot Fuzz, Shaun of the Dead. And when they didn't get it, they were like, well, what is this? Yeah. Um, and then I, I think it was the year after I finally sat down and watched it. I went, what is everyone talking about? This movie's amazing. And <laughs> this is a movie that you want the main character to end up with a 17-year-old girl because Knives Chow is just, I don't know, it's kind of a weird thing it puts you in. I'm like, <laughs> so why doesn't he end up with Knives? I am confused. But then you go, right, she's seven, oh, she's 17, that's why. Um, yeah. But I know he did film multiple endings, um, but it is it is such a creative and it sort of shows how much he loves musicals because this is very much structured like a musical. Each X kind of has their own musical um kind of theme to it um and yeah. i mean early chris evans performance i mean playing a jackass i mean it's so, <laughs> it's, it's literally has everything and there's this whole garlic bread line that, that i we still use what do you mean garlic bread makes you fat um it's, <laughs> it's, i don't bread know makes I, you fat. bread makes you fat <laughs> um it's, it's 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 great and a great perfect trailer to start off with um and because you're going with uh scott program i'm actually going to go for another I want to go for I wanted to go for a kind of a big blockbuster because that sort of encapsulates what this movie's about, but that kind of big blockbuster nature. But I'm going to go for um, Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Can you be trusted without your shackles? Let's just get this over with, shall we? We have a mission for you. A major weapons test is imminent. We need to know how to destroy it. Really doing this. I want to help. Good. Good. I've been recruiting for the rebellion for a long time. You destroyed our home. I fight the Empire now. I fear nothing. All is as the Force wills it. The captain says you are a friend. I will not kill you. 
Thanks. Not my favorite Star Wars movie, but you can't not love that ending. And I'm not talking about the Darth Vader ending. I'm talking the mission on the beach kind of thing. I think that is the reason why you see this movie. And I think the kind of the optimistic uh, Star Wars music in this trailer is just going to kind of get you in a mood and then you're going to watch Suicide Squad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Uh, I think this is a perfect trailer. In mm -hmm. fact, uh, this is uh, uh, whenever I was uh, kind of doing my most recent letterbox take on Dirty Dozen, I brought up, uh, I believe I brought up Rogue One. Um, <laughs> if not, I'm remiss for that. But uh, yeah, like uh, I, uh, it's not my favorite uh, Star Wars film either. Um, but, uh, and I, I do agree with, you know, the dissenters that it does have a lot of issues. Yeah. But uh, I think the, the everything in that third act of that movie really does epitomize what's great about the men on a mission subgenre of film. And uh, it, it's, in, in my opinion, it's the first time that we really see something different in the Star Wars universe. So yeah, I, I think it's a great trailer. Oh yeah, you're right, you do. You do see something different within a Star Wars movie that isn't the usual Star Wars movie. And the fact that it gets Donnie Yen in there and a few other cool kind of character actors. Um, but yeah, I do like that that movie is full of optimism and doing the mission and the Suicide Squad's just a giant bucket, which, um, <laughs> which I kind of <laughs> liked as well. Also, the same with the Dirty Dozen to a certain extent, but we'll get into it. Preston, what is going to be your second trailer? So my second trailer um, actually came out the same year as Scott Pilgrim. It's uh, it's not based on a comic, but it, you could more or less call it a comic book movie, and that is James Gunn's Super, also from 2010. Sarah! Don't touch my car again. I'm going. That's not the kind of touching I meant. <laughs> Jock, he stole my wife. Can you arrest him? Sometimes it's better just to accept these things. <laughs> Batman, Batarang, pipe bombs, utility belts. Utility uh, belt. Green Arrow has a bow and arrow. Okay. Why do you need all those? I'm making up my own superhero. He needs a weapon. That'll do. Cool. All it takes to be a superhero is the choice to fight evil. Shut up, crime. Yes, I, yeah, this is perfect. I really love this movie. This has got such a, again, fuck it attitude to everything. I mean, I, to the point where the bad guys are just so confused as to what um, Elliot Page <laughs> and um, Rain Wilson are even doing there. It's it's wonderful. <laughs> totally, totally. I, I actually... Uh, I saw this, um, I didn't see it when it came out because again, I was in high school and I think my friends were like, dude, we don't know what that is. Like we're used to Rain Wilson being on The Office. What is this? And um, of course I had seen Slither up at, the, up at this point. Um, and uh, I, I thought Gunn was interesting from the, the little of his works that I saw. And uh, you know, just the plot is just so bonkers. I mean, uh, his uh, Rain Wilson's wife falls under the influence of a drug dealer and then he becomes you know, this, this superhero uh, a la kick-ass, but this time he's named uh, the Crimson Belt, uh, which is interesting. This came out the same year as kick-ass and in classic James Gunn fashion, you know, um, he made, you know, this movie that's comparable to another movie in the same genre, but yet it's so James Gunn, you can't compare the two. Like kick-ass is such uh, a Matthew Vaughn crowd pleaser. Yes. 
Whereas and James Gunn wants to make you feel uncomfortable. And that's, I think, what makes this such a cult film, but also is what's wonderful about it. And I'm glad to hear that you love the movie because I was actually debating, even on this most recent rewatch of Suicide Squad, do I need to go back and rewatch Super? Because it's I don't want I don't want it to be one of those movies that I saw in high school and you know just didn't hold up. But so I'm happy to hear that you're you're a big fan. Oh no, I am a fan. I mean, it is an ugly, ugly super is an ugly, ugly movie. It is not, and I think it has <laughs> it's yeah. it's not, yeah, you're right. I mean, he likes to make you feel uncomfortable, which is kind of he can do crowd pleasers. I mean, we've all seen Guardians of the Galaxy. We all know that he can do that. And even Slither, which I adore, can make you oh, I Likewise. like I want to spend time with these characters. I love Nathan Fillion, I love Elizabeth Banks, I even like Michael Rooker, even though he's doing the whole bunch of stuff in that movie um <laughs> it was in all of james gunn's movies i think he is he's kind of like uh nolan's uh to um michael kane michael kane michael brooker is james gunn's lucky charm because he's in i think every <laughs> single one of his movies um and yeah he's in super um but super just goes for that really ugly um i'm just fuck it kind of movie um yeah and and the ending is just oh, powerful. Very powerful. I mean, you're right to compare it to something like Kick-Ass, which does go out of its way to be ultra-violent, but it is more relatable. It is more crowd-pleasing. It is more, there's an easier access point. Um, with Super, it's not like that. Because I know you only produced um, Brightburn, was it? The anti-Superman movie? Yes, yes. Um, but his brothers or his cousins, there's a whole bunch of gun brothers running around um <laughs> three guns <laughs> there's, there's of, yeah exactly um and that movie again that kind of crossed over into the too much of the ugliness that i was just like going, well he's the powerful most powerful creature on the planet and he's evil there is no stopping him so now i'm just going to watch mm. him enact massive violence on people and he's literally unstoppable um it got into a book point of like oh well what else kind of is is there um but with super it's got that balance right but yeah it's it's not a movie i would say hey you like james gunn this is the perfect entry point into him if you if you've never seen a movie of his i'd go no 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 watch guardians that's that's or even slither um which i yeah. warn people that you know it's, it's it's gross in the best way um but it's not it's kind of you can see the little shit and so that's why i kind of like this <laughs> trailer because you can see the little shit that is james gunn going oh i'm going to shock you i'm going to make it ugly i'm going to push you away and especially with the suicide squad which i think is doing both his personalities at once yes yes yeah no i think that's a i think that's an amazing point uh, mm. because uh part of the reason why i wanted to position super kind of as my trailer in between scott pilgrim excuse me and the suicide squad mm. was that super you really <laughs> i love that you describe it as you see the the little shit in him <laughs> <laughs> because um, I think a movie like Scott Pilgrim paved the way for something as absurd and as weird and ridiculous as The Suicide Squad. And, oh. and, and I think people don't give that movie the credit it deserves, much like how Big Trouble Little China in the 80s like, was, uh, was uh, a financial disappointment for John Carpenter. And he went, you know, uh, he went back into uh, doing, um, you know, like his horror and uh, less... Uh, less genre mixing stuff um if you if you don't count they live in that run which mm. i do because i love they live but but the point i'm making is that uh you can definitely see a through line with 
that mid to late 80s Carpenter and a lot of the more off-kilter genre films since. And I yes. think Scott Pilgrim is is kind of that for, for my generation. And, and w- without it, I just don't think uh, um, the Marvel of this period, this, this 2010 period where it was in the middle of like Iron Man 2 and, and you know, right before you get to Thor and the first Avenger that um, they would even think about letting a person like James Gunn helm, a, helm something in their universe. Oh no, it was surprising. It was like, who's James Gunn? Um, that was my thing when I, who are the Guardians and who's James Gunn? Um, but I think you're absolutely <laughs> right. Because I always sort of think when I, we, I think I, one of the first episodes we did, I talked with uh, Dan Merkeltz on Guardians and I did say, oh, it's he's influenced by Star Wars, but he's also influenced by Big Trouble in Little China as just yes. even maybe slightly more than you kind of watches all his filmography because he does have that. I don't know if you can call John Carpenter a little shit because I think he's too serious and too much of a grump to be that. There's no, but I think he does like to play around with things and same with, and yeah, I don't think without those movies, you get the likes of um, uh, uh, maybe even Tarantino um, especially Edgar Wright and James Gunn. Like, I think those two are very intertwined in terms of how they um, can kind of do things. And this is probably why my final trailer, I'm going for another one of those predecessors. Not his greatest success, because I think the, the, okay, fine, the studio wanted a Shane Black movie. And when they got a Shane Black movie, they went, no, we don't want this. And that is, of course, The Predator. Because The, which is intimidative, is very, very important <laughs> to both of these movies. Tell me about the mission. Did you see anything unusual? It's above our pay grade. Do I get a cookie now? <laughs> Look, I get it. Something went down in Mexico. Nobody wants any witnesses. We need to know if you and your men pose a threat. We're rangers. Hey, Baxley, if your mom's vagina were a video game, it'd be rated E for everyone. <laughs> Isn't posing a threat. Kind of the fucking point. Yeah, The Predator. I like parts of it. I think you can kind of see the editing going off the rails a little bit. Um... Well, actually quite off the rails a lot of it like characters just you don't even know what happened to them they just disappear from the movie um and i don't want to even get into that friggin whatever <laughs> that thing is was at the end with the whatever that was um but i think it's still a really interesting movie and i think you do capture again shane black who also a straight action guy but he knows how to work that kind of very witty little shit dialogue that both Edgar Wright and especially James Gunn exhibit so yeah it is the predator I I like this movie um I I I'm a huge Shane Black fan yeah and I will say out of the four movies he's made I do think it's his weakest Mm. I see the problems that uh, so many people have including yourself the ones that you mentioned um I will say this having only seen it once uh, only saw it in the theater I I really, it, I really love the men on a mission aspects of this movie. I think the problem I've always had with the Predator movies, um, because the first Predator I think is perfect. Um, yes. I think out of all the, the quote unquote cheesy 80s action movies, I think that it is the best um, of, that, of that type of action. Mm-hmm. Um, my issue with um, like pretty much all the sequels 
besides the second one, uh, which I like, but I also have issues with, is that they don't do mu much, you know, different. Um, and even even Predator 2, I feel like it's a little lame to go after, to follow up, you know, Schwarzenegger versus, you know, one of the iconic movie villains, monsters, wherever you want to put it, and, yeah. oh, it's just Danny Glover. I think it's an interesting experiment. <laughs> Danny Glover and khakis, by the way. <laughs> well, well, and I love Danny Glover, don't get me wrong. Me I think he's, he's a great everyman, but I think uh, for a Predator movie, it's just, for me, I've always had an issue with, like, really, you're going up against this guy? um and and you know uh i think it's predators is the one dream birdie i i like that one but but it's very it very much is is it's very much like pre-force awakens where it's like okay this is this is a rehash and and yes. it's not it's too much of a retreat i at least respect with the predator that shane black was like hey well the original film was already kind of a, a wild bunch jury dozen type of movie I'm going to lean more further into that and make it more of a comedy. And I think where the movie is discordant, especially for me, is that uh, the Predator becomes so goofy in that movie that he's not scary anymore. And of course, there's the there's the perversion of Shane Black's kid trope, which is set loose and not for the best, which everyone talks about. Yes. Uh, there, there's yeah. the messy ending. But and I get why people don't dig this movie. I will say I'm not super keen on the disdain for this movie um that that's where i kind of like really guys y'all hate this but but i mean teach their own but uh and we'll get into <laughs> individual taste i'm sure uh, yeah. when we start talking about this next film uh because i because yeah i have a very very interesting relationship with both the predator and the series that the suicide squad is a part of so mm. um yeah and with Yes, I live just the side point. I live in a predator household. My partner loves it, so um, we have the 4K <laughs> of I think all of them. No, not all because not all on 4K. Um, but we definitely have the predator in 4K. Um, it's not quite a venom situation where I actually had to watch that movie seven times, but I have watched it multiple <laughs> times. Um, my God, my partner would just go, "Watch Venom," and he'd fall asleep. And because I cannot apparently just stop a movie halfway through, I freaking watch Venom. Um, very similar to the Predator, but I think I enjoy the Predator a little bit more than I do the first Venom. Um, so <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, looks like I'm watching the Predator tonight. And you're right, I think there are moments, especially when you see uh, the Shane blackness of it, especially with the guys in the in the unit, they're all sort of going after it. I like the fact that it's sort of set in Halloween. I like Boyd Hallbrook, like Travante yeah. Rhodes. Like, I think I think they're giving legitimately great performances. I think uh, they are. Thomas Jane, I think, yes. I think you could speak yeah. to the, tour the Tourette's of it, but I think he's actually giving a genuinely <laughs> good performance. Um, I, you know, um, Keel, um, there's also these really great kind of ones, and I love how they kind of work together. This is probably Shane Black's weakest precocious kid. He's usually pretty good on it, but this one just doesn't um, completely work, especially how involved the plot has to get around him. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. It, it's still a fun movie. And it's, look, I'm really going to enjoy the Predator coming down and doing his thing anyway. And gave me Predator, gave us the world Predator dogs. So that is something. Um, <laughs> I do love those dogs. Um, but yeah, I think it's um, kind of, I think it's on its own. I think it's still a solid watch, even though I can, I still watch and go, ooh, yeah, you, 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 I can tell you, you just kind of cut out a chunk there and didn't know what to do with it um but with that with a movie that did not happen because this the way even this movie was made and how they got gone is just all this movie is drama so we are now going to get beginning into 
course, James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. What are you guys doing? What? You, we're, we're here to save you. You were going to save me? It was a really good plan, too. Well, I can go back inside and you can still do it. That's patronizing. I'm so sorry. Hand. Yes, that is your hand. Very good. We're all going to die. I hope so. Oh, for fuck's sake. Here's the deal. We fail the mission, you die. If we find out any information you give us is false, you die. If we find out you have personalized license plates, you die. What? No. If you cough without covering your mouth... Harley, although that isn't an open invitation for you to cough without covering your mouth. What's the plan? How the hell am I supposed to know? You're the leader. You're supposed to be decisive. And I've decided that you should eat a big bag of dicks. If this whole beach was completely covered in dicks, if somebody said I'd eat every dick until the beach was clean for liberty, I would say no problem. Why would someone put penises all over the beach? Who knows why madmen do what they do? Now, Preston, go forth and tell us your relationship with the Suicide Squad, with this movie, with the series, everything. DC, everything. Definitely, definitely. Um, so um, I'll, I'll, I'll be up front and say this. I, um, I grew up on both classic movies and comic books. So by extension, I grew up with comic book movies. Um, like, uh, but I've always been, and uh, this is kind of carried into my movie taste, I've always been a very Marvel-leading person. Mm. Um, my, my issue with uh, DC superheroes, and this has been exacerbated by a majority of the DC Extended Universe films, is that um, a lot of them are built off of the Greek gods and they're picturesque. And of course, I understand that uh, DC characters, they, they existed first. You know, Superman was 1938, Batman was 1939. Of course, Stanley in the 60s with Kirby and uh, Steve Ditko and all those brilliant minds, you know, built off of that and wanted to bring the, these picturesque icons down to a, a grounded level. And that's... Mm -hmm. That was very much the, the superhero content that I that I grew up with uh, mostly, um, and you know I love Batman, you know, and I actually really love Superman. I think Superman is is one of the greatest comic book characters ever made. Um, but I my issue with the DC Extended Universe, uh, by and large, is that I've never been a fan of Zack Snyder. Um, he he is someone who he's cultivated a very uh, fervent fan base. Yes. Uh, and I think that he has interesting things about him. I think he's a, he's really great at making action look good. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think he's great at making me feel action because I, I don't think he's particularly good at characterizations. Um, and this is going to be, this is going to make a lot of people, uh, stop listening to this episode because it's like, you like the predator, what? But, but, <laughs> but, 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 but hear me out, hear me out. Um, I, I like a couple of Snyder films. Uh, however, uh, Superman is another none of them uh, because uh, and I, I and I've done revisionist takes on several of his movies. Like uh, I do think the Batman v Superman uh, Ultimate Cut is is better than than the theatrical cut. I think it was so that movie better. was that movie was edited to shit the first mm -hmm. time. Oh yeah. However, the 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 last third of that movie is the same, and and I think that that movie, that's where that movie goes from being a messy movie to being an a, an outright terrible one. And mm. shoehorning in the death of Superman, uh, having casting an actor as Superman where you're not going to let him be charismatic or even enjoy what he is like, what like what 
having him enjoy, you know, saving people um, and, and the things that I love about Superman as a character. I think when you do a superhero movie, particularly a Superman movie, I think it's important to have saved the cat moments as screenwriters say. And, and I think that throughout whole swaths of Man of Steel, especially Batman v Superman, either cut, you see, uh, you see like little to none of, none of those things. And so I, I'm already, you know, so coming into this movie, I, I've been hurt by a lot of uh, DC outings. Uh, you know, I, I really love Shazam. Shazam kind of gave me what I wanted those Snyder Superman movies to be. It had heart, it had soul. I feel like it really got it right. And, and there's a couple of other DC movies I haven't mentioned that I really do enjoy as well, but um, that are kind of part of this universe. But um, so by the time that Suicide Squad came out, it was after BBS and that kind of disdain I had for that thing, probably unreasonably so. Mm. And this is, this is getting somewhere, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, you know, I was, I sat there in the theater and I was just like, okay, well, of course it was terrible because I hated those last two movies. Mm. So like, and, and of course that was before Wonder Woman. That was before mm. Shazam. That was before Birds of Prey. That was before all these movies that, slowly gradually won me back yes um and so by the time that James Gunn was announced to make a Suicide Squad movie I had no expectations I was like okay DC is very 50-50 with me you know I I I like a lot of their stuff I love one of their films um but I don't know and then you know I put it on HBO Max that fateful day that dropped last summer and I was like okay so Viola Davis is back. Okay. She's okay. She's doing Amanda Waller stuff. Um, to the extreme. <laughs> Even more than more the first one. She is Amanda Waller, capital A, capital W in this one. I love it. That's, <laughs> that's the thing. It, in, the, in that first movie, it's it's over-edited and, and just so schizophrenic with yes. what they're doing with her that it's really hard to tell that she's actually acting. But in this movie... It's so razor focused. And mm. because it's following the structure of not only men on a mission movies, but one of my favorite movies of all time, Dirty Dozen, yeah. they position her as the Robert Ryan of this film. Like mm -hmm. she's doing yeah. very stodgy, very authoritarian, but very shady stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, dude, this is the wall I grew up reading. This is this is the wall I grew up watching in those Justice League animated, you know, cartoons. Mm. Like this is awesome, you know? And then Idris Elba comes in. And I hadn't, keep in mind, I had not seen a trailer for this thing. I just knew that James Gunn was doing it. Yeah. And so when they uttered the name Bloodsport, I was like, oh, the Superman villain. Holy shit. They, they've gone for the D-listers. Okay. And yeah. They, oh, they, make, mm. they make the great joke that uh, he, he killed someone. <laughs> he killed super, he tried to, 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 to assassinate Superman with a kryptonite bullet and leave yeah. him in the, in the ICU. I was like, oh, this is tickling, this is, this is tickling my, my, you know, my, my geekness going on. And yes. The movie constantly kept winning me over, over time and time again. And it is the most fun I've ever had watching a DC Extended Universe movie. Um, you know, for someone like myself who, is, who has become so indifferent to a lot of their fare, and, and especially, you know, I had really serious issues with the Snyder Cut, which I'm sure we'll get into as well in this episode, because mm. there's just so much to pack, unpack here. Oh, so much. Um, I... I I would argue that it's the best of the DCEU films, but I, but it's also because it's my favorite of the DCU films. So much of what I haven't liked 
in a lot of mostly the Snyder led films, in my opinion, is, is absent here. I, I think James Gunn, his talent is so much more palpable. I think his pacing is, is so much stronger than a lot of his predecessors. And I think a lot of what I love about Guardians 1 and 2 is present and accounted for in this film. And, and I think that the Suicide Squad, it's him being that little shit that you see in Super, but it's also him having the biggest heart that I've yet to see in a DC Extended Universe film. I, yes, I can absolutely see where you're coming from on that, especially um, I have a very hot and cold relationship with Zack Snyder. I have come around on Man of Steel a little bit. I still, my, my issues with Man of Steel is always going to be my issues with it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because I don't think, Superman's meant to be happy. I don't think his Superman is because he's trying to make him too much into it of a Jesus figure, which he's not the first to do this for Superman. I fully realize this. Um, and I now I do kind of like the extended cut of Batman v Superman because he's allowed to go very weird with it. But I still mm-hmm. think that that movie has a massive Martha problem that it's never going to shake. It's just that is you just have to accept that as part of the movie. Um, but things like Watchmen, I'm still kind of lukewarm on, even though yes, and I have seen the extended cut. I, I, I <laughs> it's not like I've done my due diligence with that goddamn long movie. Um, I'm not. A fan. <laughs> I am not biggest fan of 300 i need to go see dawn of the dead again i've only seen it once um that was back in 2004 in 2004 which james um, gunn wrote which james gunn yes he did he did he wrote that so maybe i should go back because those sensibilities might go together just this over stylist and the and and that kind of writing style that gunn has um so i and i much started really loving the dc movies once they kind of broke out of the we don't have, we're going to do the opposite to what Marvel's doing. Marvel's got their plan. Marvel's got their kind yes. of big arc it's going to do. Um, we're just going to do um, our own thing. And then you get Wonder Woman, you get Shazam, you get um, Harley Quinn and the Emancipation um, and uh, the Birds of Prey and the Emancipation of Harley Quinn, which might be one of my, I think it might, that might be my favorite DC movie. Um, I That movie just decides to go for goofball and I, I love it. But my favorite, and that's movie. one of the few times where DC's gone goofy, and it's really worked for me. Is Birds of Prey? Yeah, because there's a sort of an undertone of heart to it. It's just, and yes. it's Harley Quinn being Harley Quinn, which I think James Gunn brings to this movie uh, more so than the original um, uh, Suicide Squad did, because she was so concerned about her ending relationship with the Joker. The other two are just like, just let Harley be Harley, and it's <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> Because superpower oh, comes man. from cocaine and egg sandwiches. I mean, how glorious <laughs> is that? Um, and she has. I think we all, <laughs> once we saw that egg sandwich in Birds of Prey, we were just like, we we get it, Harley. We you go, you go, you go, get mad about that sandwich. We you get may it. get mad like, about the sandwich. I I understand wholeheartedly. Um, <laughs> it's 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 yeah. So I kind of like the mashup of different kind of themes. And yes, I didn't love uh, Joker, but it's part, still part of this mishmash of the different kind of thing. It doesn't have a plan. Um, right. And saying that, I do like the four-hour cut of Snyder's thing. Yes, I realize it's a much better movie than what Joss Whedon did to the Justice League, but kind of whatever. Um, so yeah, I'm a bit hot and cold on him. And kind of when I was watching, and I haven't really loved anything Marvel since. I know Mike has spoken about this, and he loved the Spider-Man uh, No yeah, Way Home, yeah. which I really like, but I'm just not there with everyone else. Uh, mainly because I think 
when I like Spider-Man, I think I like Raimi's Spider-Man. I'm like, that's kind of- Interesting, okay. Because I am kind of more of a DC kid. I like, I grew up on the Greek gods mythologies um, or mm-hmm. Egyptian mythologies and all that kind of thing. So, and when I did start reading comic books, it was Batman, it was Frank Miller, it was Alan Moore who was being published by um, an offshoot of the DC. Um, and so it was kind of is more, that elseworlds you're referring yes, to yeah the elseworlds yeah yeah it's kind of more that kind of stuff and i didn't necessarily gravitate toward oh these guys are scientists kind of thing um <laughs> like, as my power as said, came from cancer my power came from cancer <laughs> gamma rays i'm like i know i understand gods but i don't understand gamma rays that's pretty much kind of where i was um there you go um, and so in, when I was watching the internals, I'm like, going, Oh, this is a Marvel DC movie. I think I kind of like this. And that's the fact is that's the movie I like the most out of the new bunch of Marvel movies, apart from the Hawkeye show, which I kind of adore. Um, cause I could have Alana, Yelana and Kate just eating macaroni in an apartment for eight <laughs> episodes and I'd be fine. Um, but it's, yeah, I think I just like those big God kind of things of, people struggling with their abilities because they know they could hurt people or kind of whatever or what if things don't I think I just like that so watching the Suicide Squad which is as you referred to has all the D-team villains in it which is such a gun notion of just bringing the misfits in um yes I love these are the guys who are trying to constantly go up against gods and they just constantly fail because they are never going to be as good as Superman. They're never going to be a, as good as Batman. And they are never going to be as good as the villains um, that they want to fight. These are kind of the losers in the corner, except for Harley, who's just skipping around seeing rainbows. But that's, <laughs> she's she's a little different. But it's I kind of like the notion. So when you do see Algis for the first time, um, trying to pick off chewing gum off the floor under prison in his frocks, I think it's kind of says to speaks of who these characters are and who they have actually seen. And then they, yes, they fight a god at the end. It happens to, yes, the Okay. Uh, just warning, we are going to spoil the shit out of Suicide um, <laughs> Squad. It only came out last year. I've never not spoiled anything unless it was in the trailer. I didn't want to say. But yeah, there's a, it, I mean, they fight a giant starfish, which I'm always going to go, yes, yes, and yes. So, um, which I did not see coming because I didn't see the. Yeah, it's in the trailers for this. So like I I had no idea that they were fighting Starro. And sure. uh being being such like a, a Batman fan, like one of my it took me back to I don't want to just like reminisce like during this whole period, but it took me back to one of my favorite episodes of Batman Beyond, where uh did you ever watch Batman Beyond by I the did. way? I, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's there's an episode where uh Terry McGinnis uh has to go up against Superman of the future and mm. Superman is being taken over by Starro. And so uh, I believe in that timeline, Kryptonite is very, very low, uh, which is which is really how it should be because in the mm. comics it's that way. But anyways, um, he's having to use every single skill and every single gadget at his disposal to take out a Starro Superman. It is such a <laughs> yeah. fun 20 minutes of TV. And I never thought that I would see Starro in a movie. And I think Starro's inclusion, you know, nostalgia aside, I think his inclusion as the villain for this film is very emblematic of what I love most about it is that it's both, this whole movie is both funny and ridiculous and terrifying and adulterated and soulful all at the same time. And I think someone who is as 
multifaceted as a person and as an artist as James Gunn could only pull that off. Um, I think this movie speaks to what you're talking about, where he assembles the misfits together, you know, this, this suicide squad, if you will, uh, where the plot is, is there, but much like the dirty dozen, the, the, the plot is very much, Hey, we're assembling all you guys together, um, to do the suicide mission for us, uh, with the possibility of us, you know, cutting you from our umbilical cord if you succeed, but, uh, you're probably going to die and this whole world hates you and now you have to defend it. Here you go. Mm. And it's all these misfits going into hell. And I think that that is such a powerful theme that um, unites both of these films. And James Gunn talked about that um, in interviews uh, both before and after the film um, was that he really wanted to do a throwback to, you know, the very specific, you know, subgenre of war capers from the sixties and the seventies, you know, stuff like, the Great Escape, you know, movies like, you know, the Where Eagles Dare, uh, uh, Kelly's Heroes, that type mm. of, we're going to get a whole bunch of A-list faces, well, B-list in this case, <laughs> playing, you know, D-list <laughs> villains to, yes. and you're there just have a good time with them. But this time he's bringing that Guardian's touch to it where it's all these misfits from all these really broken families. Um, you know, you have Harley Quinn who kind of came into her own in Birds of Prey. Hmm. you know, and, and Gunn, you know, saw that as something potential to maximize, uh, because Margot Robbie clearly loves that character, you know. Oh, she owns that character now. I think if anyone else tried to play her, I think there would be, you would have to go through Margot Robbie, and she would beat your ass. (laughs) Oh, yeah, no, she's, especially after watching this movie, I mean, to me, my favorite action scene of the year, and, you know, I've seen one shot, <laughs> but my favorite- <laughs> Which is just one big action scene. <laughs> it's just one big action scene, and it's awesome, and I love that movie. Yeah. But my favorite action set piece of the year is still Harley's escape, um, like, with uh, fighting all those guards with the javelin. Like, that yeah. scene is so, it goes from being, it goes from having Birds of Prey type action, because uh, I think it was the 7-Eleven team who did the choreography on that movie. Mm. So it kind of has that acumen to it, but then it erupts into a truly Tex Avery-esque, like, uh, microcosm of just cartoon bird craziness as she's just dispatching these guards, and it's the blood becomes, like, polka dots and uh, 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 comic book uh, onomatopoeias and, and yes. just the language in which it changes. And then even when the door opens, like it's a subtle thing that happens, but I love when the door opens and she's back to seeing, you know, Bloodsport and Rick Flagg, you hear the birds in the background. And every yes. time I, I've seen this movie three times now and I love it more each time, but every time that that scene ends, my brain just melts because I'm just like, you just took us through a surreal fight scene and now you're letting us back into your, your, your reality. And I think that that's really cool. No, I love that sequence from the moment she gets to the palace from when she ends it. Now, it's intercut, that scene's intercut with a few other things going on in the movie, but there's a moment when she's kind of been taken prisoner and they take her to the palace and then they dress her up and she looks in the mirror and goes, I'm a princess. And then in her mind, she is now a Disney princess, but she's also Harley Quinn. Um, And I think that's where all that comes from. I, I, I have to get into... The bird violence did get to me a little bit. And there's a scene where she sees, I mean, the dictator is covered in bird, parrots. And she's like going, well, parrots are very important to a print. This is how I'm sort of reading it. And so when she does escape and she does do that, that amazing sequence of her killing guard after guard after guard, and then all of a sudden you see her point of view, 
she's in a palace, she's doing her princess thing, and all of a sudden everything's rainbows, hearts, you know, on one appears, all this amazing stuff. Um, and that is kind of who Harley Quinn is. She's insane, yes. and she will kill you. I mean, the fact that when she goes, oh, well, you said you're going to kill kids, that's a red flag, and now I have to kill you. It's not I break up with you. It's literally I'm shooting you in the chest. Um, <laughs> that is how she deals with things. And quite frankly, but you're killing kids. Yeah, but no, that, kids. that's <laughs> it's, um, it's it's a red flag. And yeah, people say why, and I just break up with you. But then for a moment, you're like, you know, graffitiing my door, killing my dog, you know, doing all these horrible things, and you're like going, oh yeah, this is this because she has the worst taste in men. But I do love how, you're right, that is one of my favorite action scenes of last year. I think it's glorious. Um, I still don't quite know what James Gunn has against birds in this movie, but that's his thing he needs to work out. Um, but it's, it's, it's kind of, yeah, that stuff is absolutely glorious. And I think he lets you kind of settle into that moment because it's this beautiful way of mixing violence with pathos and this kind of amazing personality and letting you just fall in love with her. And then, unfortunately, he does a very different thing with uh, David uh, Datchamel. I'm, I'm going to butcher his name, Polka Dot Man. Oh, when yeah, yeah. That, that scene feels unforgivable in a movie that should know better because you get to know everyone else, and as soon as he gets his hero moment, he gets stepped on by Starro. Um, and it, the timing is the only moment in the movie where the timing and the pacing and the thing of that feels off it feels mean and yes I he's a very capable of being a mean filmmaker you just watch slither you watch especially here um super not uh in gut in guardians because there's no way you'd be allowed to get away with that kind of stuff um but his script for dawn of the dead is also very very mean it is very um, mean so he is he's got a meanness streak to him but in a movie where you were falling in love with all these dopey characters even peacemaker to a certain extent though he is the worst um <laughs> he is you kind of don't allow to get that character to have that moment. And it's just like, oh, but let him shoot his polka dots. Let him, oh, can you just give him five minutes before you stepped on him? It's, yeah, it's it's a joke and I get the joke, but at the same time, it doesn't feel right when you've just watched this amazing Harley Quinn scene and you've been able to live all that moment when um, uh, King well, Shark. especially after, especially yeah. after Bloodshot, Blood, excuse me, Bloodsport dispatches Peacemaker. You know, he yes. takes him out with that amazing, you know, bullet scene. You know, yes. uh, that's it's 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 sandwiched <laughs> in between. Yeah, it's sandwiched in between that moment, and it's also right before that. Rick Flag gets his big hero moment, and then immediately after Polka Dot Man dies is yeah. when Ratcatcher Two gets her big moment of big of hero redemption. moment. Yeah, everyone and, and gets that moment, and yeah, you're right. It just something about that doesn't feel right i'm saying this is my favorite superhero movie of 2021 <laughs> no, no no i i'm right there with you about mm. that flaw um and, and i think the fact that it's sandwiched between so many good hero moments makes it all the more frustrating um because uh i was like because when that scene happened the first time i watched it i was like ah you were almost there i was so mm. into everything that you were doing even the bird death uh i was <laughs> i was i was in for that uh but i think and I think that that, and I think uh, other people uh, on different shows have spoken about, you know, the drama that James Gunn has gone through uh, before making the film and then, and then during. And yes, I think, I think we're starting to see a very different James Gunn. Um, you know, he's doing Peacemaker right now, which uh, I haven't watched yet. I'm, I, I'm, go I'm going to after literally after this, uh, uh, after this. Uh, I've seen recording. the first episode and I did like it. And the opening credits is something you'll never skip ever. <laughs> 
that's what I've heard. I'm, I'm super excited for it just mm-hmm. because I am a big fan of him and especially this movie. Um, and, and that scene felt so strange to me. Um, so I, I can't, I can't, I can't justify it even in my own head, but um, yeah, no, I, I think that is the one moment in this whole movie that feels like the air, the air movie that came before yes. this, like the, like where Slipknot yes, can climb anything uh, and then he climbs something and, and literally dies. And, yeah. <laughs> and that's what, that's what that moment felt like. And I think that works in the Dirty Dozen uh, because, you know, you spend time with all these characters and whenever mm-hmm. Trini Lopez, you know, get, gets, you know, he, he, he twists his neck and dies, you know, as they're parachuting, you know, you see him die off screen. It's like, okay, well, you know, he, we didn't spend as much time with him versus the other dozen. So we kind of look the other way on that. Whereas here, Polka Dot Man, we, we, there's entire poignant humor built around his relationship to his mother and his family and his own body. Yes. And, um, but yeah, that's the one moment in this movie that I don't, that I don't love. No, it'd be like in, if the Dirty Dozen had done that with Clint Walker or someone um or yeah. donald sutherland like just oh no he's dead and it's like but wait i've been following clinton walker and donald sutherland around actually kind of starting to care about them and then you tell me they broke their neck it's yeah it is kind of that weird moment and you're right i think the way he made got to make the suicide squad is well essentially he was fired from disney um and that yeah. was a mess on all levels i mean okay early 2000s humor was a very dark and dangerous and not as real as the comedian's um you like to think they're being real about shit were they were just saying shit to get a reaction um yeah. james gunn was very much a part of that so he said some shit um and then for that he got uh kicked off making guardians movies and then disney realized wait we can't make a guardians movie without james gunn because he's it's only he's the reason he's, he's the, the reason. reason we love those movies like it, exactly it's, it's, it's it's not like uh like what you were talking about with No Way Home earlier. It's not like what the Spider-Man movies have become, which mm. I, I kind of feel has gotten mixed reactions from uh film fans where the Spider-Man movies at one point were Sam Raimi's artistic expression. Now they're part of the the MCU machine. Yes. To to a degree. Mm. Uh, versus the Guardians films, which they exist in the Marvel machine, but they are very much James Gunn films. But it's James Gunn for better or worse, you know, like, you know, like on his best behavior, like he's, it's that little shit. That's like, okay, James, you can't do this. You can't do this. You, know? you, you can't be a little shit when you're making the guardians. You can be a little stinker occasionally, but not a little shit. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, yeah. and with, with, with the, 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 the first suicide squad, like that whole debacle after that. And then the, all the drama between the first and the second film where they were finding directors. I mean, to me, I don't know if you uh, if if you remember like the names of the directors that were uh, that were chosen before Gun, but like it was just insane to me. Like Mel Gibson was the first choice. Oh, I did hear that, and I just went, "Oh no!" I mean, he could make a Suicide Suicide Squad really easily, but it's it, aside from his personality, Mel Gibson has a very specific thing of really off-putting violence. Like you watch one of his movies, and I'm like, I feel dirty after watching that even to extend a brave heart he has bits of it i need to have a yeah. shower this is too visceral gross. <laughs> that with a suicide movie no <laughs> and, and gavin o'connor was uh originally like after bill gibson left gavin o'connor yeah. was attached to this uh which uh, i think gavin o'connor left because he was uh really he was really miffed at uh warner brothers for moving ahead with birds of prey without him um, uh, and, yes 
And uh, that's how he left. Cause I, cause I think his last, yeah, his last movie was actually with Warner brothers the way back, mm. which is really good. I liked it, but mm. um, uh, and then uh, I can't pronounce his name, but uh, J- uh, Jamey Colette, Sarah, um, he went off to do, he did the shallows and then uh, DC thought he would be interesting. And then, oh, he did the house of wax remake. That's his big thing. And then mm. uh he he had scheduling conflicts with uh, Joe Cruz, so he left for that. And then that's when the the James Gunn stuff happened with him leaving Disney for a while. Mm. And then that's when DC was like, "Ooh, here we go!" And Hello, James Gunn. Yeah. The thing about Marvel is that they always have a plan. Um, I don't know what yes. the newest. I think that's maybe why I'm not loving as many of the Marvel movies since Endgame because I don't know what their plan is quite yet. I mean, Iron Man. They literally in the movie with let me tell you about the Avengers initiative. So you kind of get the idea of where it's going. This, I don't quite know what their plan is, but I, but they always kind of have, okay, if you're going to go and direct a Marvel movie, there are these five things you need to consider. The only two directors that I feel got away with actually making their whole movie or actually were involved in the previous were the Russo brothers and James Gunn. I don't know how they did it because when they started mm-hmm. making their movies, they weren't exactly, Disney had worked with, Bigger and more directors with sway, um, I would say, before they got to their ones. But if you watch uh, Witch Soldier and the First Guardians, you're like, oh, all the action feels of a piece. All the action feels of the piece of the movie. Like, those it's not guys, second unit. It's know, not second unit. Actors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. These guys have actually gone in and goes, no, I want the action to look like this. Whether it is being shot second unit, they've actually had their hands on it. Um, and it's kind of, which is why the Russo brothers have done so much with, up to Endgame and then you know James Gunn has got his little corner but has influenced how movies have been made in the last since 2014 when Guardians came out oh yeah Guardians um, Guardians is Ghostbusters yes. um it's very it's very hey we're going to you know have you know great songs on the radio we're gonna take you know this B-list comedian and make him an A-list star we're yes. we're gonna it's it's a comedy that's set in a in a sci-fi fantasy universe that's more concerned with the characters and the heart of the characters and it works on that level. Um, and because of that, um, it allowed someone like Taika Waititi, um, who's also a genius to, to make Ragnarok, which I've always felt is Marvel's, the closest we're ever going to get to Marvel's Flash Gordon. Um, it really is. Yeah. Um, it, and it's, it's very much, it, it's very much like that production by way of a Frank Francetti painting. It's, it's so, so much fun, but yeah. It, it really is. And you're absolutely right. So, and I think he's another director that sort of got away with his own kind of managed to go in and go, right, I'm going to do it this way. And they went, okay. Um, which I don't think happens all that often. Yeah. Even something like Black Panther, which I think is so well made. The action, some of the action sequences, especially toward the end, don't necessarily all fit for me, even though the characterization and the design and the set design and, and the culture and the history that he built around Wakanda is perfect. And I'm like, and that final train uh, fight sequence could be kind of like, that's my poker. It's two, two cats playing with a knife. It's... It really is. That's the perfect way of saying it. It's two cats playing with a knife. Um, and you did so much to build up these characters. And that final sequence between the two um, is amazing. Um, even though they should never kill Killmonger off. I'm like, come on, got to bring him back. Um, <laughs> it's like, oh, he's too good. But it's, yeah, it's kind of that thing of like, oh, Marvel was kind of like we need these specific action scenes and we need to work them this way um because we want to put in this technology we want to put these special effects in and then with Guardians I'm looking at it going this is all James Gunn James Gunn just said can you build a giant skull out of like a planet and that's a mining town they went okay 
Um, it's, <laughs> yeah, and I think he does bring that to the Suicide Squad. And it doesn't feel out of place because by the stage, DC had been going, what the hell? Let's just do a Shazam movie with monsters and scare the, the look out of kids until we make them feel okay at the end. Or let's do a Harley Quinn movie and just make it a Harley Quinn personality. Um, let's just do all this stuff and throw things at the wall and, and generally see what sticks. It's, and this kind of feels like, like that. Yes, it came out during a pandemic, so maybe it didn't hit as well as Warner Brothers wanted. But when you're watching it, you're like, no, this is a James Gunn movie. James Gunn is going to have Michael Rooker's head blown up and the presented <laughs> by Warner Brothers Presents coming out of the brain matter. I'm like, that is the most James Gunn thing I've ever goddamn seen in my life. And that is how you start your credits. Bravo, sir. I love it. <laughs> and a montage of, of people in those credits, you know, taking, like, literally making money off the bets of, like, okay, this member of the squad is going to yes. die in this one. And, and this all, yes. Yes, they are. It's and, um, and that mirrors the Dirty Dozen, where it's so um, cynical. Yeah, it's it's these we it, don't these aren't people to us. These are just well, there is a movie called The Expendables, but they are expendable. Um, and you're right, it is exactly <laughs> like that first scene of Dirty Dozen. Yeah, no, it, it's it's literally the all the all the authoritarians, you know, talking shit about these these rejects who they're they're kind of making into a group and sending them out to do their bidding, and mm. and they're forcing Lee Marvin to to be that leader to care about them. And that's very much Bloodsport. Like James Gunn in an interview talked about how, <clears throat> how Bloodsport is very much, he wanted Bloodsport to be his Steve McQueen. He wanted him to be, you know, the 60s style tough guy who has to make the hard decisions, who's mm-hmm. not tethered by the amount of pathos and tragedy that everyone else is. Even though, yes, he does, you know, have the, the impetus of being, you know, you know, having his daughter, you know, you know, you know, having, you know, his daughter, uh, you know, hey, we're going to kill your daughter if you don't do this for us. Like, he Pretty has much. that going on yeah. with him. <laughs> but, but that's all there is to it with him. Um, like, whereas you get into Polka Dot Man and Ratcatcher 2, and, uh, you know, Harley Quinn has had two movies, you know, of us to, like, really examine her pathos and that kind of thing. So, um, but all those characters are very much filled out. And so I think that's what makes him kind of a natural, a natural presence in that way, which Idris Elba brings to that. Um, and I think Gunn is smart to like have, to kind of anchor this team of, of dumbasses, if you will, with, yes. with, with someone who is as uh, kind of, who's capable of being stoic and, and making the hard decisions like Idris Elba, which of course is, is a perfect contrast with someone like, peacemaker who in this film me not having seen the show he he very much comes off um as an evil captain america an anti-captain america if you will yes. like someone who yeah i'm not gonna go as far as say he evil, wants to he be very much he wants to be captain america but he's too much of a douche nozzle to um i mean i've only seen the first show um but you do get <laughs> the sense of where this man came from and he has a pet eagle because of course he does but because it's James Gunn uh, CGI creature, you instantly fall in love with it, um, eagerly. Um, but you do get the notion that this man um, is very so chauvinistic and thinks it's everything he does is in the right, even though everything he does is wrong. And that is Peacemaker to me. Um, and can we talk about how good John Cena is in this Best like, performance. I mean, okay, I will say this. He's great in Blockers, but I think he's amazing in um, as Peacemaker, considering he did also did one of the worst performances in Fast 9. Um, but that's not his fault. That is not his fault. 
he was like, be dumb. And it's like, do not be dumb. Whatever you do, okay, you're being dumb. Crap. It's... <laughs> but I think he's amazing. Just the way he sort of says, I would do anything for my country, even if this beach was full of dicks, I would suck every single one or eat every <laughs> single one. And you were just like, oh, you have, it's not shame. It's you have no kind of, you're the kind of person that tries to turn everything to make it like, what he are tries you, to make things black and white. Yes, he does. He tries to make things very black and white, which they're not, which I do love about the Suicide Squad as we'll get into the Dirty Dozen. That's very black and white. It's, we're going to kill, kill Nazis. In this movie, it's, yes, you've got to go destroy this facility because there's something very shady going on, but you also need to hide the fact that we were the ones who did the shady thing. It's much more of a modern political kind of thing. And that's what I love the Amanda Waller performance is because she's allowed to be a politician in this movie. She's not just a CIA operative of whatever organization she's with. She is allowed to be the person that has to practice her putting because she has to go smolch playing golf with a senator. And, and that's and that was one of my big disappointments with the first Suicide Squad yeah. was, uh, you know, me to my ears when I they perked up when I heard, oh, Viola Davis is cast as one of the most, you know, underappreciated DC villains of all time. Mm. Awesome. You know, Amanda Waller, she is that. She is the the great facilitator of the DC universe. Like yes. she is that, she is one of the most, she is the most cunning person in a room. Like mm. she will stand in a room uh, with Batman and having orchestrated so many of his villains plans and will make deals with Batman in order to facilitate the safety of the universe. That is who she is. She is two-faced. She is, she is, she has secrets. She is very much the evil Nick Fury. She is and, the, yes, yeah, exactly. She is the evil Nick Fury. So of course she's making it, giving a peacemaker another deal because she knows this is the guy that's going to see everything in pure black and white and know yes. we have to protect American interests by covering up all the shady stuff we've been doing on another country which is very cia very kind of whatever and peacemaker's like yeah i will do this because this is good. you said protect america i protect america and you're like well no you don't but that's another thing it's just how you see how you want to see yourself and that's what i liked about the first episode of the show you got the very much sense of how peacemaker sees himself and what he wants to be versus the fact of how he handles everything that's around him um it's a really nice, really nice touch. Um, but yeah, Mandawala is a conniving politician. She will threaten, she will blackmail, she will get everything to what she needs to be done. And you literally have to knock her out because she will kill you. <laughs> it's not a case of, I'm just going to threaten this and then back off at the last minute because I know what you're doing is the right thing. It's like, no, I don't want you to save the city. This is not what I want you to do. You need to go back because I need this five, six and seven done and you haven't done that yet. Um, and it's a nice thing that you show that at the beginning, um, that she actually killed a terrified man who was just trying to run away from not being murdered. And so there she, before she murders him in the Michael Walker bit at the beginning. Um, and yeah, she will do that again. She will kill all of them. She has no compunction. And the fact is they have to knock her out. And the fact that she's just glaring at them and going, well played, but still, I hate you. <laughs> well, going well, that's the thing. Going back to rewatch this movie on subsequent viewings, like, because the, the, the first scene we have to remember is, uh, is our entry point to the movie. And then right after that is three, three days earlier. Like everything mm. before you get back to that yes. kind of D-Day, you know, beginning of the movie is a flashback. And so I bring that up because um, the moment that Rick Flagg, who, you know, you've seen Rick Flagg in, in Emmanuel from the first movie. Mm. 
and they're and they're of course people you know before this movie came out people really bagged on you know rick flag in that movie because he gets majority of the worst dialogue he really what did. are y'all some kind of suicide squad yeah this like, is my friend katana <laughs> yeah <laughs> she has a magic sword it's <laughs> just like yeah. why are you why are they giving him all the exposition i mean oh yeah dear. <laughs> that, that's what it is it's all the yeah. exposition and here it's the first time that you see him as an actual character and yes. after the first time you watch the movie through you know when he comes into that conflict with peacemaker about you know what what is black and white versus what's actually right mm. which is what rick flag comes to represent um going back to watch that scene the look in joel kinnaman's face when uh amanda waller tells him to not pull out and just stay there because the mission is too important to her and to the world mm. she says to the world she doesn't say to her she says to the world excuse mm. me um he's just so scared but you it's hard to not focus on that shot because immediately after harley quinn gets up and starts blasting people away because that's what harley quinn does <laughs> but it's a very subtle piece of acting from him and i think you see that uh throughout every single like from the moment that the squad finds rick flag again um in that outpost after you know the that you know wonderful you know bit of bit of violence before mm. that um you see a very different Rick Flag, not just in this movie, but from the first movie. And I think Gunn, that's more of Gunn's pathos coming through, more of the gun that you do see in something like Guardians of the Galaxy, especially volume two, which I will say this, uh, part of what I love about the characterizations of what James Gunn does throughout his career is, is really probably best epitomized in volume two, in my opinion. Mm. I think volume two is so... Uh, is so overshadowed by the surprise of guardians one that i think that i really love uh i love the the the, the broken family aspects of guardians volume two i love the how yondu comes into play with oh. both star lord and also rocket yes um and i love how the theme of i mean i'm a big kurt russell fan anyways so if you make him the villain and you make him uh literally a, a living planet that you know only kurt russell Star-Lord could play ego <laughs> Only Russell could do that, you know. He 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 pulled it off so well, and that broken family aspect is so is so visible in the Suicide Squad. If if you're the type of person, if you if you look, I I I typically don't care if people don't you know like movies I like or love what I love or what what have you. We all have different you know viewpoints, but if if you're someone who doesn't vibe with the soul of this film, I dare you to go back and pay attention to those scenes where uh, Bloodsport's speaking to Ratcatcher 2. Um, and, and, you know, and Daniel, uh, Daniela uh, uh, Mel- Melkafor is given mm. that that star-making, you know, performance. Oh, she's so good. Uh, it, it's such an absurd character and she walks the line between being poignant and being truly, truly weird. Yes. Um, and And she is... In fact, um, I can't say Harley Quinn because Harley Quinn was established two movies ago, but she's probably the most James Gunn, James Gunn, you know, character in this movie because of, of she walks that line. You know, Bloodsport's built off of, you know, the, the, the anti-heroes, the Lee Marvins, the, mm. the McQueens, you know. Uh, you know, Rick Flagg is very much in this film a diametric, a philosophical opposition to, to Peacemaker. Um, and Peacemaker is very much the, you know, the epitome of the, of the, uh, you know, what if Captain America was super, super, super cap, 
uh, in his own head ass ways. Yes. Um, <laughs> and but Ratcatcher Two just wants people, just wants everyone to be your friends, and 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 she's the first person that really wants to, that really sees a sees a will to to bond with King Shark after King even though Shark he's about to eat her. He's about to eat her, <laughs> and and it's such a funny moment. But the fact that she is so pure, the fact that she her purity is is what can kind of tame this beast, uh, or who everyone wants to see as a beast, rather. Yes. Um, I think that that really drives the film. So I think I think if this movie has detractors, then I definitely want them to go back and pay attention to that to that aspect of the movie because I think that that is such. It's like she walked off of the set of a Guardians film and just fell right into the misfits of of this DC stuff. To be honest, a lot of the characters feel like that. And I think both, all the characters do walk that line of just being goofy and sincere. Um, even Peacemaker, I think he's got that. He's very sincere in his beliefs, even though that you are they all wrong. Um, it's, and his his helmet looks like a toilet. As it does, it toilet does look like a toilet. Um, <laughs> get ready for multiple helmet jokes in the, in the first episode of, of Peacemaker. Um, I love that. <laughs> state of the art um no all these kind of characters do but i think he one thing he did really well is that he realized that there's already a relationship between harley quinn rick flag and boomerang who sadly doesn't make it past the first 10 minutes um it's such a yeah but his death still means something to harley quinn those two have you always got the sense that those two have been on more than one mission because just the two australians walk in and go hey boomer and they just kind of enjoy, apparently i don't like jay courtney when he has an australian accent when he doesn't i think he's boring as white toast but i agree oh my gosh oh my gosh when he's allowed to be australian i'm like oh there's your personality it's in your accent you (laughs) know who that reminds me of (laughs) no that reminds me of uh how i feel about jean claude van damme a lot of the time and that's and that's so weird that i'm saying that but but i I think when van damme is allowed to just be uh, a frenchman and be himself in a movie Mm. like lionheart i think he's wonderful Yes. Um, delivering, you know, his stilted delivery, but I think that he's his char- his charisma is going through. Whenever he's being an American, more often than not, I'm not I'm not into it. And I feel and yeah, Jai Courtney, I, I think that speaks to the magic of what happens when actors. Some actors are are they're meant to transpose their personality into a role. Yes. And, and some actors aren't. Yeah, yeah. And like, I don't go to Leo DiCaprio to see the same DiCaprio. I go to him to watch him act, you know? Yeah. Like Ben Affleck, I go to watch Ben Affleck. Oh, like, yes. It's just, it's, it's just it's, what I expect. It's like Jean Claude Van Damme. I go to see him being a dopey Frenchman in New Orleans, going, well, my, my mama <laughs> took a chance because that's what I want out of a Claude Van Damme movie. Um, <laughs> I don't want to see Jai Courtney pretending to be um oh my god I can't remember the character's name the Terminator I, I feel like someone needs to take my movie oh Carl Reese Carl Reese um I don't want him to be seen being Carl Reese because you're not going to bring anything to it because yeah I want you to be Jai Courtney just be Jai Courtney don't be anyone else um wait you didn't I, like Genesis no I'm kidding I'm kidding <laughs> i know i'm the only one with that point of view of not liking genesis Um, (laughs) i think it's underrated no no never mind no no no. exactly rated enough (laughs) it's right where it needs to be (laughs) yes arnold schwarzenegger has yeah but like arnold schwarzenegger i go to him to be arnold schwarzenegger i don't want him to disappear into a role yes i want leonardo dicaprio and meryl streep 
and even Margot Robbie to disappear into a role. I, but yeah, it's just kind of those how those personalities work. But James Gunn gets um, gets the fact that there has been a previous relationship and then goes on that. The fact that all Rick Flagg wants to do is go and save Harley Quinn once he finds out that she's been taken to the palace says speaks to that because they're friends. Um, and yeah. you, when there's a, a lot of the deaths don't necessarily mean much to these people because one, they're sociopaths and two, James Gunn's being a little shit. Uh, especially the whole Milton joke, which I probably find more funnier than I should. Um, it's like, <laughs> he was right here. He's been with us the whole time. I think I remember someone, Milton was here. Um, I find, yeah, it's, but at the same time, there are certain deaths who do mean something to certain characters because you can know that they've got the bond there. Um, like even um, I just says to uh, Peacemaker, that was my friend that you just killed. And that does mean something, even, even though he is kind of a sociopath who is, going to kill him it's he does again it's that fine line and um i love rat catches too and um king shark's relationship i mean james gunn has a magic when it comes to creating cgi characters there's a reason why yeah. and baby especially baby Groot, is kind of like like a thing um and when you kind of look into king shark's eyes you see something i don't know what it is but you see a wanting there and the fact that you can tell that he thinks these people are his friends he keeps asking if he can eat that num 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 <laughs> um okay, well, if you, i can't eat you then what can i eat is kind of the essentially or when he's playing with those weird alien fish things in the aquarium before the it explodes um and the fact that he's just playing with them he's just it's just a moment that doesn't do anything for he could have cut it out when he changed the movie but to have King Shark kind of play with these creatures who he thinks are his friends kind of shows the fact that he's a he's a big tum trusting fool almost that does have a heart. He just unfortunately likes the taste of human flesh, um, and that's well, kind of his biggest problem. If he didn't if he didn't like humans eat humans, he'd be he wouldn't be a villain. <laughs> which is why, and I agree with everything you're saying completely, yeah. and I think that's why he's perfect to be in the squad because the way that he's positioned because the, the squad like I, I agree with you like these are all very James Gunn versions of these characters but I think where they differ from the Guardians is that the Guardians uh like the Guardians are each especially in that first movie they're all they're all uh uh self um how can I put this uh, I'm blanking on the word um uh, self-motivated they're yes. very self-interested in very different ways uh, which is how why they come into conflict for so much of that first movie. Um, but Groot, if you pay close attention, through all of his I Am Groots, he's the one character who's asking the right questions. Yes. And the way that Gunn recants uh, the translations through uh, Rocket's you know, monologues um, is really brilliant, especially when you're watching that movie uh, from a writing standpoint. Mm. With, with this movie, he's not doing the same Groot stuff because... He already has characters who, I mean, are, honestly, I think if, if if this Suicide Squad went up against those Guardians, um, like uh, like it, it's not even a contest. I think no. they would take them out <laughs> just because they're 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 so they're they're not Superman or Batman. You know, the Guardians are they're the Guardians or the Misfits. Yeah. Um, and I think King Shark he brings the innocence that so many of these characters initially lack in regards. Mm of um aside from you know what you just said with the harley flag uh uh, uh boomerang trifecta where mm. they don't they don't give a shit about each other but 
King Shark has the has the the longing to to want that family aspect, and so since Ratcatcher Two wants that, and she, I think she she comes to really admire the leadership qualities of Bloodsport. Yes, and, and finds that that father figure. Um, I think that really drives. Um, it's those three characters that really drive the heart of the movie. Yes. Um, that said, as much as I love King Shark, I mean. Harley Quinn just, <laughs> I just, I keep gushing she, about her, but she, she, she's I mean, awesome. She, she's the one that doesn't have an arc. She doesn't need one. She's Harley Quinn. Giving Harley <laughs> Quinn an arc is a little weird. Even in her own movie, it's a little bit all over the place because it's who she is. And I'm kind of glad that Margot Robbie has kind of taken ownership over her because she can go in and go, no, this is not what I think the character would do. She would do this. But this is a movie where you have characters who have very important arcs like that like um, Alba, um, Ratcatcher 2, um, those two are kind of the fundamental parts of, because Ratcatcher 2 is always trying to push um, uh, Bloodsport to be a better person, to actually yes. stand up and actually do something. Um, and he does. He essentially sees that um, thing is going to, uh, Peacemaker is going to kill her, so then he kills him purely because he hates him and purely because he doesn't want any, he already said, I'm going to make sure you get out of this alive. So they've already made this kind of promise. Harley Quinn keeps coming in and stealing the movie and going, no, this is going to be a Harley Quinn movie for 15 minutes each time she's in the movie, which should not work. I don't know how it does. It should be <laughs> distracting as all hell. It's like, oh God, she's in a different movie and now I have to deal with this. But at the same time, it's all part of the piece, but she, at the same time, she's in her own movie. <laughs> like your whole thing is about, why am I carrying this javelin? Why? Oh, now I know. It's because I she's still... slapping the dead body of the yes! guy that she made out with before and, and gave it to her it's just like okay dude <laughs> yeah i mean she's got her own movie her own side plot i mean the fact that she go jumps into um starro is amazing and i love that scene with all the rats coming oh my god it's so gross and so good like he's just, oh yeah what are these things just get off me um they're too small for him to control and at the same time there's too many of them for him to deal with um <laughs> but yeah she, she kind of keeps taking away focus away from the main story but you never but it's always welcome. You never feel, um, which is why we keep going back to hers because she steals this movie a hundred percent without feeling even trying because she knows that she knows this character well enough. and can play Harley Quinn, a, a, a really well-played violin that when she does come in and you have her whole side story in the palace, you're just going to enjoy it. It doesn't have anything to do with the actual plot of the movie. In fact, she keeps ruining the movie. She keeps shooting people and killing people she shouldn't be killing <laughs> um, for the plot to move forward. And it's kind of an amazing magic trick that Gunn makes this and the editor, um, I don't know the editor's name on me, um, are able to actually make this work. Because in any I other think... movie, I don't. it would be a mess. <laughs> I mean, every time well... she goes and has a weird fantasies on the first movie, I'm like, ugh. <laughs> yeah i'm like all for it <laughs> no i'm right there with you i think i think the, the way i look at that of uh, kind of her side plot uh for one thing i don't feel like because of those reasons you mentioned like i think it's cool that she spends so much of the movie by her own accord because mm -hmm. she she margot Robbie has a natural charisma in and of herself that she steals movies i mean yes. i think we all i think we all collectively as a film going community we all fell in love with her when she came on wolf of wall street yes. just you know like just her charisma was effusive mm. and and not or sorry effusing excuse me mm. she's not not oppressive i, I swear i love margaroby but um i make that point because 
I see her side plot as an extension of Birds of Prey, where Birds of Prey, that be, especially the beginning of that movie where um, she's literally blowing up the Joker. Uh, yeah. I, I think that's, I, I mean, I think she blows up the Joker. I mean, he appears in the Snyder Cut, of course, but um, in her mind, she does that. And so she finds a team of her own in a way before going back to her own kind of adventures. And with Birds of Prey, or, sorry, with the Suicide Squad, that side plot and the way that she, you know, kind of goes from, you know, finding this javelin, you know, on this guy she takes a liking to, and then he dies, meets another guy, dispatches him <laughs> because she realizes, oh yeah, or remembers again, oh yeah, I have terrible taste in men, you know. Um, it, it, it really, I don't want to sound like a social justice warrior here, but it really does feel like it's, the, it's more of the character coming to her own. Yes. And it's it's the fact that it's not her having to coexist with this boys club. And, um, you know, Ratcatcher 2 has to be there just because Ratcatcher 2, you know, hasn't had, you know, any other, you know, screen time yet. Mm. So, and, and her arc does play into the the father-daughter kind of uh, vibes of, mm. of the, the film versus Harley Quinn, who she's already a well-established character. Rick Flagg needs to be established. So he he's in his, he's gonna do his own thing and then come back later on. Hmm. And I, I think the way that gun kind of Empire Strikes Backs <laughs> these these uh these uh these characters like separately and then before he coalesces them and and lets chaos happen in that wonderful third act, I think that really is uh really is amazing uh, and I think that's the only time you'll ever hear someone invoke the Empire Strikes Back when talking about uh a superhero movie but yeah <laughs> no I agree and I absolutely agree that Harley Quinn doesn't need the boys which I kind of which I love I love the fact that she's kind of her own person she's I love the fact that she was kind of as movie Harley Quinn has been taken out of the Joker's shadow she's not because in the I, I love, I grew up on the animated series. I love the animated series. Um, but Harley Quinn was always the mole to Joker. Yeah. She was always, she couldn't, I think there's a few, and as the character developed, they kind of moved her away from him. But I love the fact in this movie, in her movies, she's her own thing. She doesn't need the boys. She doesn't necessarily need to, um, she'll go do her own thing. She's not tied down to anything and she doesn't need these. Yeah, she likes people, but it's not necessarily on this, oh, I'm just going to follow you around. Yes, Flag is my friend, but that doesn't mean I won't kill him or I am going to ignore him or when they're trying to save me. Oh, that's so sweet. I can go back in. Like, I've killed everyone. It's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's this kind of thing where she can kind of be above it all. And I love the fact, yeah, like the whole Birds of Prey was the whole emancipation. Like, she's not a Joker character. She's her own kind of thing and she's been created to be her own thing. And I kind of like the fact that she's kind of above she's kind of like when when I first saw her and so the, the in suicide squad I was like oh no she's going to be this kind of wet dream fantasy kind of because that's kind of how she was dressed um but when you watch the movie she kind of steals again that movie because she's her own person and she can kind of rise above that if that makes yeah. sense she's not just this kind of sex kitten she's she's Harley Quinn um and James Gunn takes that and also Margot Robbie takes that and just run with it in this movie because she's like, yeah, it's Harley Quinn's just going to do her own thing. If she wants to <laughs> fight the, the starfish, she will. If she's going to do this, she's going to do whatever she wants. She'll somehow get away with it. Because I love, the two moments I love is, of course, the walking in the rain, two pixies um, 
hay, which I'm always oh, going to yeah. like. Fuck that yeah. milking's walking with them. I just at a joke, which is in the rain. And you see they'll come and flag and Harley smile at each other. It's all wonderful. And then the other moment when they're walking back towards Taro and man and Walla is screaming at them, don't you do it, don't you do it, because I will kill you. And then each make the decision to follow um, Alba. And it's this great thing because Alba's like, oh, God damn, I'm going to do the right thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. more pissed off about it than anything else. He's not like, oh, I've decided to do the right thing. It's like, fine. Um, he, he, it's in Rat character. Catch is like... looking at, yeah, it's in character. Ratcatch is looking at him. He's got his paternal instincts coming out. It's it's all kind of a thing. Um, and it's kind of this really cool moment, but I love the fact that they do the right thing, but again, it's complicated. They're not going to show this footage to the world to sort of show, hey, look what American government's been doing. It's more, no, I'm just going to, look, I'm blackmailing you. Let us go. And then this doesn't see the light of day. It's kind of this middle ground that they find. Oh, totally, totally. No, I, I agree 100%. Um, I, and this movie is full of just great visual visual flourishes. I mean, and that's another thing I think that um, a DC movie like this does way better than majority of the MCU movies that you're talking about, which is mm. it, they Gunn really takes advantage of the visual frames. I mean, mm. the the fight between um, Peacemaker and Rick Flag, where you see the fight take place in the helmet, because. Yes. We, we, we've seen so many action movies. We've seen so many adventure movies where people are just punching each other. And okay, that's cool. But, and you want to see that because it's that type of movie. But I think just subtle things like that, like shooting it on the side of a helmet, you know, that's just catching, you know, the, the visceral action of these two, you know, uh, philosophies literally duking out at each other, I think is really cool. And of course, the other shot that I love is... Uh, King Shark literally ripping that guy uh, in half, and then you see the lightning in the background. And yes. it, it's slowed down. It's slowed down like a comic book shot. And I think that that's something that, uh, you know, Zack Snyder, who, of course, you know, we mentioned earlier that Gunn has worked with before hmm. and it is an executive producer on this movie. You know, I mean, you compare that to the Snyder cut where there's, there's so much ridiculous slow-mo uh, for, for my taste and James Gunn and, and obviously James Gunn, you know, doesn't use slow-mo, you know, that much anyways. But I think if, if Zack Snyder could rein that in, I think I would enjoy his fare a lot better. You're never going to get Snyder to slow down the slow-mo. <laughs> slow-mo. Slow slow the God, they'd just be like pictures. No, he loves his slow-mo so much. And that's one of the things I have. I mean, I think the Justice League is maybe one of his better movies because he's actually taking time to to have characterizations for the characters, especially Flash and Cyborg. And I actually was clocking on, I was watching, I'm like, huh, not so many Wonder Woman butt shots. Interesting. Like, <laughs> so, like the fact that he's, I don't know if it was a reaction to the fact that everyone was like going, oh my God, you just look at like how Wonder Woman shot in Wonder Woman and how she shot in Justice League. And it's like constantly looking up at her ass. And I was just watching it going, are these going to be the same shots of just looking up at, at Gargoyle's butt? No, it's not. It's over her shoulder. I'm like, interesting. I see the difference. But to his credit, I will say before the before he got to make the Snyder cut, like uh, his daughter did pass, so that's it did. probably it, 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 it probably it was, affected him in that way. It did. It was a hard situation. Um, the reason why he had to leave. I mean, these last few movies that we're talking about are all kind of so drama filled behind the scenes, and 
Yeah. Because we live in the society we do, we all now know about it. I mean, I couldn't tell you half those stories about the Dirty Dozen just because everyone, it, it was all kind of more closely hidden unless you really want to drink deep about who was the more alcoholic of who on that, that set. Um, which would be a fun game, actually. Who was who was the most drunk on, on Dirty Dozen? <laughs> Possibly Aldridge. Deal with that many egos. Well, I, we we are kind of in a bit of a of a of a I guess a, a side note, but I, I think I, something that Chris Furtado, a uh, Chris Furtado, uh, mentioned, hmm. I think uh, in, in y'all's last episode together, that I thought was really insightful. Where he said, anytime something happens in a superhero movie, someone becomes goaded, and I thought that that was so interesting uh, yes. because we've seen. Because now I'm starting to see revisionist takes on Joss Whedon's work. Mm. Um, you know, uh, ever since the events of No Way Home, uh, you know, and of course, Andrew Garfield. Andrew Garfield is now movie. the greatest, yes. Yeah, now, <laughs> now he's apparently the greatest Spider-Man, even though, you know, those movies, no. Um, no, a few months ago, <laughs> no one would speak of him as Spider-Man. Now he's like, he's a really good Spider-Man. Just the, I'm like, those movies, yes, he is good in those movies because it's Andrew Garfield, but no <laughs> yeah yeah it's just <laughs> yeah it's just it, it's a it's a weird kind of culture that we're in where it, it, it's like uh i feel like fandom is so back and forth it's like it's yeah. it's really cool to like certain stuff um uh, and it's really really trendy to dislike certain stuff i mean i remember uh when i was in college uh and uh and uh that was when um Spider-Man Homecoming came out and it became cool to hate the Raimi films for a while people yes people don't talk about that anymore but like it became cool to bag on those movies and forget the etymology of the superhero genre as we know it like yeah we had the Donner Superman films and we had um Tim Burton's Batman and and you know the Rocketeer and the and the Crow and, and yada yada but um those movies I feel like is what really took I feel like Raimi really created the language for what Kevin Feige and his successors are doing today. Oh, and Kev- yeah. And I think yes. we don't talk about that enough. So no, Kevin Feige was one of the producers on the original Spider-Man's um, yeah. in the 2002, 2004. He, and possibly even 2006. I haven't actually gone back to see 2006 yet. Or rewatch it. Um, but he was definitely involved, not the way he's involved with the Marvel Universe, but everything he learned on how to make a really good superhero movie, he probably learned on those movies. Um, because Sam Raimi just has the best crew around. He's the best editor. He had freaking Bill Pope, who is the master of like, how do we do this impossible thing on screen? He's like, I will figure it out. Um, <laughs> it's he's He had all that. So we kind of learned the style and everything like that. But you're right. I do remember when Amazing Spider-Man came out, people were all of a sudden saying how Tobey Maguire was a terrible Spider-Man. And it was just like, really? I mean, no, I don't think that's correct. And then Tom Holland came out and all of a sudden it's like, well, Andrew Garfield obviously sucks. So does, um, and now of course, so so does Tobey Maguire. And then you get them all in a three movie and everyone's like, oh, they're all the best. I love them. And it's kind of this very- It's very hive mind. It's very hive mind. And it's very kind of of the moment. Going back to the Suicide Squad, I think um, it keeps bringing up that black and white nature of everything like that because you're watching, yes, they're deep, goofy characters, but they are also the villains. Um, I think the original movie tried to turn them into heroes. Oh, we're going to save the day. These ones, except for that moment where they decide to go take out Starro, is the only heroic thing they decide to do. Everything else is self-preservation, which I... Kind of love. 
Well, that, and that's just it. Like the first movie, it commits the cardinal sin of uh, only showing each each person being a criminal in the beginning of the movie, yes. and then after that, it's all these it's all these people who keep saying they're the bad guys because Harley Quinn says it over and over again uh, in the movie. But we're the bad guys. <laughs> but we're the bad guys, and then they're they're fighting you know a supervillain who they're way too way too underpowered to even take on realistically. Yeah. And ver- versus this movie where, okay, well, they're taking on Starro, but there's the, there's a bit of a tetherment there because of uh, the, the whole Project Starfish thing and Peter Capaldi's there and all right, fine, cool. But aside from that, um, you know, them kind of marveling out the end and rocking out as, as a comic book movie, it's, it's very much, you know, these are, these could, these could very well be the paid mercenaries or the, the 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 military defects or the the death row inmates that Robert Aldrich was playing around with decades ago. Yes. Um, and I think I think Gunn really does, you know, I, I think more more so than a lot of movies have attempted, like uh like Rogue One and movies like that, I think James Gunn is the first person in a in a while to really nail the, the structure of a men on a mission movie. The, the, the key to making a great men on a mission movie is, you know, is, is really making your, your team expendable, literally expendable. Um, there needs to be that tension that, hey, these icons, like these, these people can die at any point. And I don't want to see them die, but they have to because there's no way in hell that all of them are going to make it. Yeah. And uh, that's what's great about the wild bunch that's what's great about the original predator is that you look at that movie and it's a bunch of the biggest icons of the 80s sans stallone all go up going up against you know this alien hunter who's basically putting them in the in the, in the most dangerous game mm, yes. uh and, and gun very much understands that subgenre he understands teamwork in film and how to portray that in a superhero film and he does that so well and that's why that's why it's uh that's why this movie is is so far my favorite of the DCU. Possibly that could change, but at the same time, this is the very first one I've bought on Blu-ray. And uh I uh, I can't wait to revisit it time and time again. So no, he does, I mean he he does misstep here and there. And as Mike uh Scott likes to keep saying, he keeps stepping on the emotion, which I think he does, because I think he's a little shit. And that's kind of like he likes to play with your kind of emotions in that way. Um, but I think he is really good at showing these guys as dickheads that they are out for themselves, which I think is a very important thing about a men on a mission movie. These are just disparate people who are put together. Um, then and they have to learn to be a team like the dirty dozen. Um, they have to learn to be a team before they can go do the thing. And they do this in this movie, but you fully well know that if any of the circumstances were slightly different, each of them may have turned on each other. If Norwell, if Norwell king shark got upset he could have fully eaten polka dot man um or um <laughs> or rat catcher too um and gun kind of understands there has to be a slight fuck you to the movie and i think he gets there and that's what i like about it i mean with rogue one and the first uh suicide squad yeah you don't see them you only see them as bad guys at the beginning and they're, otherwise they're heroes except for jay courtney going oh screw this i'm running out of the bar but i think he comes back <laughs> or i can't remember if he does um, that's kind of the only moment of like, oh yeah, these guys are assholes. They're not necessarily um, unlike Guardians, 
who want, who actually want to become a family by the end. Yes, they fight um, and they kind of argue and snip at each other, but at the end of the day, they love each other and care for each other. I never got the sense with this in um, Suicide Squad, except for Rat Catcher 2 and um, Bloodshot. I always get him and Deadshot yeah. mixed up together, which is, yeah. Um, which, and... which Will Smith was supposed to uh, be reunited with Margot Robbie with this film originally. That, yes. that was back when David Ayer was still attached to direct the sequel. But uh, Even... I think it was because I think it was because yeah. of Aladdin and Gemini Man. He uh, yes. they had to basically re redo a whole new lead. So they did, but it still feels the fact that he has a daughter, and it still kind of feels like it could have been for the for the other guy for Will Smith a little it bit does. but I can't imagine Will Smith swearing that much um <laughs> so when you see his earlier movies and you hear him swear you're like oh god Will Smith is swearing um it's, <laughs> it's like yeah, he did do that um but I think um I just Alba brings that more grumpy old man Steve McQueen vibe than I don't think Will Smith has a very different movie star persona than I just Alba and I think he brings that grumpy old man I'm going to yell fuck you at my daughter for five minutes which I love that thing <laughs> so much. <laughs> it's just like, that's your relationship with your daughter. But yeah, they have the only two kind of emotional connection that I think drives it is between those two characters. Um, and it's more grudging on Idris Elba's part. It's like when in Kong versus Godzilla, when Kong's like, God, I have to save the suit, don't I? Okay, fine, let's do it. <laughs> um, I don't want to do it. I'd, I'd rather be in my little underground cabin. But, you know, Godzilla's being a bitch and I have to deal with this. This is that. <laughs> the vibe i also get from I it totally like, is it's like i don't want to deal with this i don't want to deal with peacemaker i mean i love the scene when they have their pissing competition of just them killing how many people they can kill and because can... it's dope as fuck yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and i think it's more elaborate as they go by the end they're just setting people on fire <laughs> oh that seems so good that seems so good because because so after because uh because literally idris elba turns to the camera he's just like He's right, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that seems amazing. This, this this whole movie is just full of the, the music drops I love. Uh, like there's, I mean, you mentioned uh, the Pixies Hey earlier, which that that's always been one of my favorite songs by the Pixies. Yeah, so I, I had no idea, had no idea he was going to use that in this movie. And uh, um, another reason why I'm excited to watch Peacemaker because I, I hear that the Neil drops in that are pretty, pretty on point. They um, are, it's, I don't know where it's set. I've got a sneaky suspicion it's set somewhere in the mid-Midwest. But there is a, I mean, my partner got so excited because he's rifling through some vinyl and he sees the choir boys. He's like, I had all those outfits. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it is very, it, it's all of a piece. I mean, no one drops a needle like um, James Gunn. People have tried, many, many people have tried, but no one quite gets that James Gunn or actually Edgar Wright does the same thing. No one gets those two um, kind of thing. Apparently, I think it was Baby Driver. Edgar Wright said he had to email James Gunn to make sure they were using different pieces of music because it was the Guardians Volume 2 and Baby Driver that were trying to make sure they didn't use the same songs. Wow. <laughs> I did not know that. That's so interesting. Yeah. Wow. It's, it, yeah. Um, it was, yeah, I was listening to an interview about it. He's like, yeah. And he goes, oh, because you and James Gunn like to use pop music. Like, it's a new thing. And he goes, That's oh, yeah, true. no, I emailed James Gunn just to make sure what songs he wanted to use in Guardians. And he's like, okay, so what are you using in Baby Driver? <laughs> Maybe you can speak to this, like maybe a slight cultural difference, but I'm, I'm, I'd be curious to know how you feel about this, but I'm curious if, if, you know, James Gunn, like being an American filmmaker, he uses 
standards that uh like that that over in the states like we know more often like we i feel like we all pretty much know come and get your love over here pretty well Mm -hmm. and songs like that versus edgar wright like baby driver especially like he's using bands that everyone knows like queen but he's using like deep cuts like brighton rock and and songs like that and yes you know very old british pop songs i mean even i mean that's especially the case in last night in soho because again British like 60s British pop is the vibe of that whole movie so I'm curious how you feel about that um yeah I think because growing up in New Zealand and most of it was very lots of British influence I think I recognized um the music um like a red bone I wasn't completely familiar with I don't think it could have been around like it probably was around like we got both American and British but for some reason when um I think it's young MC. He drops in um in Baby Driver. Like I was just like, yeah. Oh shit! Did you use Young MC? Um, I think, <laughs> and he does. He does love that very nineteen sixties um British pop, which is again, which I think is probably how uh, Last Night in Soho began. He's like, how can I use all this sixty pop, sixties pop that I like? <laughs> How do oh. I build another movie around music? <laughs> How do I build another movie around music? We're doing it for most of my career, but let's really just get into this. Um, yeah, I think he does. I think there is a cultural difference in terms of the sensibility between a British, um, especially someone like Edgar Wright, who was so freaking British in his um, sensibilities, and someone oh, yeah. like James Gunn, who's so American in his sensibilities. <laughs> yeah. um, a little bit more cynical, I would say. Like He's probably the, <laughs> one of the most cynical major blockbuster directors working um except for maybe snyder but that's just a different kind of i don't know different kind of cynicism yeah different kind of sense more visual cynicism (laughs) where there's done is just actually like "Ah, the world's a piece of shit let's just let's just go with it um yeah let's burn it all down with brightburn um and i know he didn't direct that i know again gun family (laughs) um um, true true that yeah i think there is a different kind of sensibility but i did recognize a lot of the songs just because my mom loves Silver Black, especially with the last one in Soho. So I'm like, oh, yeah, Silver Black. Oh, yeah. I, I know I know all that. I was a big Silver Black fan and all that kind of thing. So I think there is, um, and I think there is a very specific, yeah, Britishness that I think Edgar Wright kind of revels in um, that I think is coming back to British cinema only because of Brexit, where they're actually, a lot of filmmakers are going, okay, so if we're not part of the EU, then what are we? So they're going back and trying to figure out, okay, so what is British? What is British nostalgia? What is, mm. um, like Paddington does this a lot. What make the, the Paddington movies do, especially the second one does this a lot. Okay, what makes us British? If we, um, if our country that's, made that's this, had made, our country made this decision, which a lot of people don't understand. Okay, so what are we? And I think Last Soho does, is you can fit that into that, British cycle and American cinema is just like going shrugging their shoulders and going yeah what are we I don't know <laughs> a lot but it's um bigger explosions um I don't want to think too I don't want to think about it too much just yeah which but I think Suicide Squad does go into that sort of psyche of who are making the decisions why are they making the decisions and do we need to know why they're making the decisions which again has been going on since the 70s um especially with those yeah. paranoid kind of thriller thrillers from ellen Bullock. i can't remember her name um the all the president's men 
Um, oh, Alan J. Pakula. Yes. Okay. Um, it's kind of going back to those kind of um, very paranoid. Like the parallax clues. view, yes. and, and clues, stuff like all, Three Days of the Condor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All that kind of thing where you don't know who to trust. And Suicide Squad has that in spades. Not so yes, much. It does. It's it's just like I can't trust my t- I can't trust my fellow teammates or whatever. I can't trust what Waller is telling me. I don't know what going on with Capaldi because he's obviously crazy, and I love the fact that they just kept those things on his head. Um, I'm assuming that's from the comic books, but I love it. Um, the fact that he looks like an alien as well is is amazing. Um, <laughs> Frequents a gentleman's club, I think, is the best thing ever. Um, and yeah, all these sort of kinds of things. So you do get this kind of very well. You just can't trust anyone. All you can really do is just get leverage upon someone and hope to God that you put your emotional investment in someone who's actually going to do the right thing, like Al just does when he goes, "Okay, we're going to fight this goddamn starfish." <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I, I think, and I'm glad you brought up the point about the 70s thrillers, because as we, as we start to kind of talk about The Dirty Dozen later on, I see that film as kind of a, a transition point, um, because it, it's, it's in such a pivotal year for cinema, where yeah. it's, it's kind of the, one of those last gasps with the Hollywood, the old Hollywood studio system, and you see the birth in that one movie of some of the seeds being planted for new Hollywood, um, like the, the Alan J. Pakula's and the, the, um, the people inspired by Frankenheimer. Um, yes. And a lot of those, a lot of those paranoid, the conversation like Coppola and people like that, like a lot of those paranoid type of thrillers blow out, you know, mm. that's oh. not seventies, but that's yeah. very much in oh, that camp. That pretty much influenced all the other paranoid thrillers that would come. I mean, that's way more arty and way more disintegrated than any of those movies, but they took that kind of thing of, oh, maybe you can't trust your eyes. Maybe something you saw isn't what you saw, and then that was the 70s. I mean, The Dirty Dozen was made the same year as Bonnie and Clyde's. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, With that, we might as well get actually into... Okay, so with that, we're going to get into The Dirty Dozen. Now, Preston, what is going to be your first trailer for this movie? Oh, so my first trailer is uh, it's uh, gonna have to be another one of my favorite movies of all time, and that is The Great Escape, 1963. Yes! You're crazy. You ought to be locked up. You too. 250 guys just walking down the road just like that. These were the men. Hiltz, the cooler king, who broke every rule as fast as the Germans made them. Hendley, the scrounger. He'd come up with a baby elephant if the men needed one. Where's your kit? This is it. The rest was confiscated in the last shakedown. The goons didn't appreciate some of my more personal items. Um, though now I can't watch this movie without thinking of Leonardo DiCaprio in the lead role. But other than that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's true. No, yeah. That, that, yeah. When I went, I think when a lot of us movie fans, when we saw uh, Once, Upon, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that whole Great Escape bit is just, it, like, there's always a moment in any Tarantino movie, like, no matter where you come out on it at the end, where there's there's always gonna be that one bit where it's like okay this scene was for me this is for my movie fandom and that was that definitely hit my great escape love uh that whole bit so yeah no I was really surprised when I watched it for the first time because it was um 
because now we're going to get into what um, I like to call lovingly because I do love these movies, dad movies, and my dad especially was much more of a Steve McQueen guy, a much more of a John Ford um, and John Wayne and especially The Great Escape. He loved this movie. Um, and I was always a little bit, that's nah, a very long prison movie. But when I actually sat down to watch it, watch it as I was older, I was surprised how funny this movie is. Um, and the fact yeah. that Donald Pleasance is in it, the fact that it goes to, it's one of those true epics that takes you through a whole array of emotion. It's not just kind of, which they still make these days. I mean, just look at Endgame and Infinity War, but it's, yeah, no, it's just one of those great classic movies. You're like, yeah, that's a really good movie, John Sturges. You did well. <laughs> well, John Sturges uh, was kind of a, kind of a king of making these like like kind of like dad movies i want to say yes. um i mean he i mean he literally made the magnificent seven remake the first remake <laughs> yes um, another one of my dad's and, favorite movies <laughs> oh yeah and of course bad day of black rock which is amazing oh yes um, and and i mean we'll, we'll we're gonna talk this is the half of the episode where i think we're getting into like kind of some of the premier tough guy dad movie filmmakers and sturgis is one of them and um you know, I, I like I love recommending this movie to people, especially people who aren't necessarily into pre 1970 cinema, uh, because even though despite the runtime, this movie is just fun. Uh, I think, yeah. and that's the big thing is that it's based very loosely on a true story. It's about um, uh, kind of a failed escape plan, depending on your perspective, mm-hmm. of um, a, a bunch of uh, prisoners of war in Slag Loop 3, I think it's what it's called, in, in nice. what's now Poland. And uh, basically, Richard Attenborough, you know, uh, John Hammond himself, yes. is uh, who's been a, a, a Gestapo, uh, who's, who's literally been a Gestapo prisoner prior mm-hmm. to the events of this movie. Like, he basically spearheads another escape to basically... And yeah, and, and it's just wonderful and of course that's where you get the steve mcqueen connection because he of course is just just radiating charisma in this role um the the great motorcycle chase there's just so much stuff <laughs> drives across half of poland on that thing <laughs> yeah yeah and and the theme music by El- elmer bernstein like this movie just this is one movie i can't be objective about much like the movie that we're about to get into like i can try to be but I mean, it's just such a part of my DNA. It's it's one of my one of my favorite films ever. No, because we are going to be getting into a very specific tough guy movie, which I think has changed possibly for the better. But I love this era of tough guy. I mean, I mean, this is kind of one of those casts like the Dirty Dozen that you just have to sit back and go, "Holy crap!" I mean, for Steve McQueen, James Gardner, uh, Charles Bronson, who's also going to be coming up in a very moment, um, Dr. Richard Hammond James himself, Coburn. James Coburn, Donald Pleasance, who yeah. I, just because I love Halloween, and when I was watching this, I was like, holy shit, Donald Pleasance is, like, had a whole other career, apparently, I was unaware of more than my Halloween love. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, David McCallum, um, but my weird NCIS procedural uh, obsession that I watch when I'm tired, um, it's just, yeah, it's one of those casts that you just sit back and go, oh, holy crap. And it's just a well-done movie. You can't sort of sit there and go, oh, The Great Escape's not a good movie. No, it's a, it, it's a great movie. There's this period in the 60s where they made these very tough guy movies. We're just A-listers. Like, They're just A-listers. I mean, I love the whole story of The Great Inferno, which is, again, the 70s, but Steve McQueen and Paul Newman. And they both names had to be on top 
of the building because again, great uh, the Great Inferno had a massive part. Oh, the Towering Inferno. Oh, Towering Inferno, sorry. <laughs> Towering Inferno. And then um, and then they had to have the same amount of dialogue or something. Paul Newman was getting very, but then he read Paul Newman realized, oh wait, I'm the architect, he's the firefighter, he's gonna be the hero, I'm just gonna be the dumbass and the <laughs> God damn it. Um, which I love because Stephen Queen just walks in and goes, I am the boss and everyone else is below me. And you're like, yes, yes, Stephen Queen. We, we, I know. And- well, that bit where uh, in, in the Grey Escape where he, uh, I think it's after uh, after one of, it's the, first, it's the first time in the movie where someone gets themselves killed. Mm. and uh there's a there's a scene right after that where steve mcqueen rushes after him after uh i think it's after the guys first shoot that gentleman yeah and uh and a and a nazi knees him in the in the stomach with a gun Mm. and uh i mean that was steve mcqueen improvising that was something that john sturges being that kind of ego manager if you will that is a good way of putting these directors actually is (laughs) Well, because you you had to think about like, you know, John Ford, you know, John Sturges, like Robert Aldrich, these men who excelled at making these tough guy movies with very tough male actors, you know, like they, I, I mean, I, I can only imagine making a movie like The Great Escape would be making something like Crimson Tide was probably from Tony Scott. Like he's working with Denzel and, and Gene Hackman just yes. going at it for two hours and you know, every story I've ever heard about Denzel and Gene Hackman, it's like, okay, like these are some of the sweetest guys ever, but when they're acting, they're about business. And yes. I, I feel very much that way about, uh, again, stories I, I can only hear about Steve McQueen because he's since gone, but but yeah. Oh no, Steve McQueen knew he was a movie star. He knew <laughs> that he was the coolest man in the room. There was no question about that. Um, very much like uh, Lee Marvin. Um so I guess for my actually next trailer, I'm just going to go for Lee Marvin because I adore this man. It's nothing to do with man on a mission, but Lee Marvin's on a mission. I'm going to go for Point Blank, also from 1967, by directed by John Borman. Walker is an emotional and primitive man. Do you remember when we met? Suddenly... We were together. Lee Marvin is Walker, the hunter and the hunted. Who the hell are you anyway? My name's Walker. Are you crazy? You ever meet Walker? He makes my flesh crawl. Yes. Um, this movie is glorious. Um, after I watched first Dirty Dozen for the first time, which was after Daniel's and Matt's Cobwebs episode, um, or watched in full, because I think it was probably on the TV as a kid when I was a kid. Um, mm-hmm. I watched it, went, holy shit, the, the Dirty Dozen, and then went, wait, what other Lee Marvin can I watch? And this, of course, led me to his other great one point. It was one of his, his many, many movies, but Point Blank is a fever dream. Uh, I love how you can have different theory, theories of it. It's so stylish in a way that uh, The Dirty Dozen is not. It is so um, feverish. It is kind of complete opposite, and it's a completely opposite different character, even though he is playing a, just as a tough anti-authoritarian, anti-everything, the same, very kind of similar kind of vibe to um, his character in The Dirty Dozen. 
but because it's point blank, it's a completely different movie and he is amazing in it. Um, I mean, this is Angie Dickinson. You just, he, he let slap like for five minutes. Um, then the camera just keeps going. Um, it's got the most amazing house with amazing pool setup I've ever seen. I'm like, I think it's um, John Vernon's house actually. I can't remember. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's an incredible movie and Lee Marvin again, like I would, like you said, like um, Robert Algers would have been an ego manager because I, again, Lee Marvin knew he was a movie star and wanted to be in the movie as accordingly as that status would allow him. Um, and yeah, this is all point blank. Like he didn't have to fight with anyone on this movie. Definitely, definitely. I'm I'm so happy you went with this trailer because uh, I actually rewatched this a couple of weeks ago. I'm a I'm a huge fan of this movie, a uh, huge fan. And uh, I mean, Lee Marvin is is just one of my favorite actors. Period. Mm-hmm. And I think as an actor, this is his finest hour. Um, I think everything that he does well in in supporting roles, like a lot of the westerns. Uh, that he made a lot of the film noir that he made in like kind of the 50s and the the 60s hmm. preceding uh this this era because i believe this is the same year as the, as the dirty dozen yes uh which uh the dirty dozen is very very hollywood on the surface versus point blank which is very very uh it's very film noir crossed with french new wave oh that, and, yes absolutely and through the prism of even more experimentation it, it very much it's it's and and i don't know if john borman's in my estimation made a movie quite like it um and it, it's just such an original work i mean i mean it's adapted from a series of novels the parker books but it's there's no movie quite like it and, and it's it's i mean there's so many point blank babies i mean you look at i mean jesus the first john wick very much the way that the continental is is filmed and framed in, in certain ways is is loosely inspired by what Borman achieves here. Yes. And I mean, I love that moment that you mentioned from uh, when uh, Marvin's getting slapped around by Angie Dickinson and he's just still. Yeah. And it's such a bizarre scene that, that and, and the movie's filled with these moments like that that it quite lingers on. I mean, and the fact that he's going through, through all this vengeance just to get to what the the antagonist thinker is just a small amount of money. Um, it's just so fascinating. And it's a, it's a movie that uh, I, I come back to every few years. Uh, I probably should come back to it more often because it's just, it's just so, so good. It is so well done. And I love the fact that he just wants what he's owed. And everyone's like going, really? That much? You're going through all this for this, which I think is a thing in payback as well, I want to say. Yes, it um, is. That they're like, I want my ten thousand. Really? You you're doing a lot for ten thousand. I just want what I'm owed, and it's kind of this revenge fantasy almost. And you, I have loved the theory that he actually dies at the beginning when he's trying to get out of Alcatraz, and the rest is just this kind of his life passing through his eyes of what he wished could have happened. Or you can read it as a straight narrative as well. But it is going back to um, blow up. It is very much you can tell that um, Bowman's taken what. Um, uh Antonio Antonioni was doing I love the fact that this movie I don't love and the fact that all my favorite movies are based on this is is kind of incredible I talk about this in um blowout I'm like how do I not yeah it's like I love these movies but yet blow up not so much um David Hemmings is amazing but I'm just like oh Antonioni you're so full of shit um (laughs) (laughs) yeah everything he employed everything that came after him I desperately love so but I think this is kind of you can definitely see the influence on that 
again, it's hard-boiled, it's Lenore, it's just this amazing movie. And at the center of it, Lee Marvin is incredible. He is the coolest man in the room. He is sexy as all hell. He's amazing. He's got that silver hair. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's John Vernon. John Vernon. He's so he's so atypical for this movie. I mean, he's he's very much a villain in Animal House, but a different way. And 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 he, you know, kind of his own character in Outlaw Josie Wells. But in this movie, he's strangely a handsome villain. And it's really it's, it's really cool. I just I never I love John Vernon, but I've never seen him as a snack. And then you watch this, you're like, oh, <laughs> kind of a snack there, John Vernon. Kind of hot. Um, he's got his whole office set up. It's kind of great. I don't know what it is. It's kind of got a John James Bond's early James Bond feel because this is the 60s and that's kind of the style. I don't know. Um because it's very pop art. It's very it's Andy very pop art. Yes. At, at points. And it came up the same year. I mean 67 is just a big year period. For really film, is. But, I'm just looking like, at some of the movies that came out. I'm like, oh yeah. Samurai. Like yeah. It, it's I think that is a perfect double feature. I mean if you want to uh if, if this doesn't have to be an episode, but if if people out there want to do a double feature, do point blank in any John Pierre Melville mm. uh, and uh, and and you will get your trippy noir for the for the evening. Chris Tutard is um, if he's listening to this ears have suddenly perked up because um, he's a big <laughs> oh he's a big Melville guy. But yeah, I'm just looking at the movies that came out in '67 and it's you can tell it's definitely a transition year. Um, but before we get into that, uh, what is your second trailer for the Dirty Dozen? Sure. Uh, I'm going to follow your lead and go with another Lee Marvin. And uh, I'm going to do The Professionals from 1966. <laughs> what we really need is an equalizer. A dynamiter. A man with a delicate touch to blow out a candle without putting a dent in the candle holder. Philippine campaign. Cuba with Roosevelt's Rough Riders. Join Pancho Villa as weapons expert and tactician. Ex-cavalryman, cattle boss, wrangler, bullwhacker, packmaster. Specialist with rifle, rope, and longbow. Most defendable scout and tracker in the territory. Raza. Captain Jesus Raza. Jesus. What a name for the bloodiest cutthroat in Mexico. <laughs> Wally Marvin is only a good thing. Um... I love this movie. Um, it's, it's, this is Bert, no, am I thinking of the right one? This is Bert Lancaster as well? Yes, it is. Yes, I'm thinking of the right one. Um, yeah, this movie's great. Um, again, a really another great ensemble. Um, oh, Robert Ryan's in, I kind of forget Robert Ryan was in this as well. I'm just going through the characters and going, oh yeah. Um, Claudia Cardellini, who is amazing. Um, no, this is a great, great movie. It's just one of those just, it was kind of when I first saw it for the first time, I went, oh, I can see Spaghetti Westerns finally taking influence on American Westerns. It feels much more hard-bitten. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's that's what I love about it so much is that it's uh, much like Dirty Dozen. It's kind of, and I think what makes it a great trailer is that not only is it kind of the other Lee Marvin Men on a Mission movie, huh. if you will, from this yes. era, but it's but it's more so the fact that it's a, uh, it's just a fun Western uh, ensemble Western. It, it kind of, it has the grit of a spaghetti Western, like you were saying, but it, I think it has the fun of a Sturgis film. Yes. Um, where, um, cause Lee Marvin is a, if, if people haven't seen it, Lee Marvin plays a weapons expert. Uh, Lang, uh, Burt Lancaster is the explosions guy. 
Robert Ryan is the horse wrangler and Woody Strode is the archer. And mm. they're all the titular professionals who are enlisted by no one other than Ralph Bellamy, who is most kind of well known <laughs> for comedies like Trading Places and The Awful Truth and Dance Girl Dance and movies like that. Yeah. Um, he, he's basically like, hey, my it's the end of the Mexican Revolution and my uh, wife, uh, my really hot wife has, has been taken by this bandit, uh, can you like get her back, please? And their journey to get her back from, you know, the, the you know, the, 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 just the, the evil Jack Palance, hmm. who's very much a mustache trolling villain. I mean, that's what you got Jack Palance for. Oh, he's uh, well into the eighties. I mean, Tango and Cash, yeah. um, you're my number, <laughs> you know, my number one guy. I'm not kind of a Jack Palance, but yeah, I mean, he, he, <laughs> he could do a hero, but you know, he was bitter when he was a villain. <laughs> Oh, totally, totally. And and the movie really does do a great job of maximizing the charisma of all of these actors together. I mean, again, Ralph Bellamy isn't in the movie a lot, but when he's on screen, it's like, okay, this is why Ralph Bellamy is so underrated. Mm-hmm. But really, you're there for the professionals. And and it, it especially Lee Marvin and Burt Lancaster, like they they have just so much great uh dialogue with one another. And uh, this movie has one of my favorite final lines of any movie ever, uh, where a character calls one of them a bastard. He says, yes, sir, in my case, on accident of my birth, but you, sir, you are a self-made man. And it's just like, oh, I fucking love The Professionals. It's so good. (laughs) It is really, really good. It's just kind of one of those movies you just, again, that kind of ultimate tough guy dad movie um, that I think is just kind of incredible. Um, and I think I kind of have to go for another Burt Lancaster. Um, Dirty doesn't feel mm. like a movie that Burt should be in, but he's not because you'd have to be the Lee Marvin role and, well, we have to have Lee Marvin. Um, so I'm actually going to, you know what, because I finished it watching it this morning, I am going to go for John Frankenheimer's The Train, 1964. Stop! I want this engine back on the rail! If we had ten times as many men, it couldn't be done. I tell you it will. Do you hear me? I tell you it will. They bombed it. They cursed it. To hell with London. We started this whole thing for one reason. To stop the train. Because the Allies were going to be here. Well, where are they? Every day they've been doomed. And every day a man has been killed for thinking they were just over the next hill. I say to hell with it. Now they want us to paint the train, let them blow it up. They died for it. Yes. Um, I know you you did mention this as a possible trailer, but I have a DVD of The Riot. I've never seen it. And holy moly, this is an amazing movie. I mean, just the, the tension and the... Okay, you don't think a black and white movie from 1964 is going to have explosions. This movie has all the explosions of a 90s action movie. This has the characterization and the tenseness of how, because the whole thing is that um, Burt Lancaster has to try and stop, he's driving a train that's going into Germany with all the French works of art. He's got to stop it somehow. And this is with all the Nazis on the train and him being watched. How is he actually going to pull this off? And the movie is so tense and so good. And they've got all these amazing French actors um, in there as well, kind of playing off. And I love the fact that he doesn't even try for French accents. It's great. Um, <laughs> but it is such an exciting, well done kind of Frankenheimer at his height 
movie that I'm like, I kind of go, oh, I need to watch more of these movies, the John Sturges, the Don Siegel's, the Robert Aldridge's, the um, Frankenheimer's, because they make these amazing tough guy movies that are clean and mean and just, they are what they are. And um, I, I forgot that I actually grew up on these movies because so my dad was constantly watching them when I was a kid and I was just often in the room taking them by osmosis. But um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's an amazing movie. I'm so glad you liked it. Uh, this was actually, uh, The Train was actually uh, one of my favorite movie discoveries of last year. I mm. had never, never even heard of it until, uh, I forgot how I came across it. Um, it was actually, um, I, I ne so I rarely blind buy Blu-rays. Like mm. I, I'm not the, the, a type of, you know, voracious, you know, Blu-ray collector on that level. But uh, I saw that Kino was reissuing uh, The Train and it was a movie that, you know, I had heard of every now and then for a few years and I just recently fallen in love with uh seven days in May Frankenheimer's other movie that yes. year which is more of his political thriller and also Burt Lancaster and so uh, when you know I, I look on the back of this blu-ray cover because I'm in a video store and I see that it's it's oh it's a Burt Lancaster or two action movie Paul Schofield yada yada he's mm. doing a lot of his own stunts that description Kino Lorber you guys y'all made a customer that day because <laughs> I have never bought a Blu-ray so fast for a movie I had never seen and I went home and I popped it in and my mind was just blown and mm. it, it's a it's a movie that uh for all my you know pals who really love the etymology of action cinema and not just contemporary action cinema mm. I implore you to watch this movie because Burt Lancaster is like jumping from you know, he's just hopping along, you know, from, you know, often from part of train to other part. Yes, he um, is. There's, there's practical explosions. Mm -hmm. There's a really great kind of uh, mental chess game that he's playing with Paul Schofield throughout the film that's really driving the, the narrative. There is so much interesting character work while also being that practical action experience. Um, it, it has probably the... Hmm, I'm gonna go out and limb here and say it has some of the best action I've seen from this from that decade of film. Oh, it has um, that absolutely. And I know there's a few things I still need to see. Like I still haven't seen um, Bullet or um, a few other things. But those action sequences completely surprised me because it's described because I have the Arrow Blu-ray and I kind of got into because I we watched I watched for the first time Manchurian Candidate and Seconds. Um, oh, and, nice. Oh my, yeah. I need to watch fight seven days in May because um and they describe the train as a World War II thriller this is a World War II action movie pure and simple it is yeah because Burt Lancaster is leaping around like he's in Fast and Furious with friggin trains and <laughs> it's um all practical because it's 1964 and yeah they do have bombs dropping around and it is feels like a massive production even though it's very contained because you're literally just on this train um stopping and starting and he's running around trying to yeah this mental chess game he's playing with uh, Paul Schofield who's decided that he's going to be the Nazi that's going to take all the um art um from France which is not exactly what happened but I'm, anyway I'm, I'm, I'm mooning out of the wrong thing <laughs> um it's um yeah so it's this kind of mental chessboard thing and I love the fact that it's set very soon toward the um U.S. invasion um or the U.S. liberation I should say of of France um the allied coming in and actually liberating France from the Nazis and it's kind of this almost this delay tactic thing if I can just hold off long enough 
the cavalry might come. Um, and yep. it's it's a really well done movie. I mean, I know a lot of people make fun of um, his last movie, uh, Frankenheimer's last movie, Reindeer Games. He's still got that way to set action um, that I think is very particular to him, even though that movie, yes, is goofy as all hell, but I love it. Um, and it's just this kind of, yeah, it is It is probably going to be one of my discoveries of the year. I absolutely loved it. I could, every time I watch a Burt Lancaster movie, I'm like, oh, it's same with Lee Marvin, actually. Same thing. I like. I need to watch more of their movies. They There's something about them um, that I just want to watch more of and continuously of. And it's, yeah, it's such a good movie. <laughs> have you ever seen The Swimmer? Uh, yes, I have. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Perfect, perfect, uh, perfect movie. It's just... He was an actor that could do so much and did so much. He did experimental movies with The Swimmer. He did action like The Train and The Professionals. He did um, character uh, Sweet Smells Success. Sweet Smells Success. <laughs> He's so good in your cookie, your, your cookie full of arsenic. Um, <laughs> he... He, I mean, him in the leopard um, is amazing, and he's speaking Italian in that movie. Um, actually, that one I've always wanted to see. Like that one's intrigued me for a while now. Oh, it's so good. I think it's Visconti. It's based on one of my favorite um, novels, but but it, um, he's so good, and I'm just like, did you just actually learn Italian for this? Oh my god! And you're the lead. You're not like from <laughs> Perlman in the City of Lost Children. He's off to the side. He speaks like ten lines of French that you had to learn. You are in the nearly every single scene talking and it's an Italian. How? <laughs> That's incredible. No, no I'm, def- I'm definitely going to check that out because no, I've been intrigued by that for a while. Leopard is just such a beautiful, lush period movie. Oh, God, it's, I, I absolutely, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's great. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of going on about a guy who's not actually in the movie that we're going to be talking about, <laughs> but everyone else is. I mean... This war was not started for your private gratification, and you can be damn sure that this army isn't being run for your personal convenience either. Ernest Borgnine as General Warden. I'm tired of seeing generals portrayed as desk-bound pen pushers, says Borgnine. So I've played Warden as a rough professional soldier. Robert Ryan as Colonel Everett Dasher Breed. There were officers like Breed, says Ryan who could never suffer the rules broken or even bend a little. Major Reisman's compliments, sir. Tell him while it's gone. prefer to be captured or destroyed. Jimmy Brown as Napoleon Jefferson. Jefferson is any man fighting for recognition against the odds, says Brown. I think I understand him pretty well. The hell is this? John Cassavetes as Victor Franco, says Cassavetes. Franco is a petty hoodlum forced to heroism by circumstances beyond his control. We go on that mission, we all get killed. That's what they want. That's what they want. And so I'm guessing um, I kind of grew up with this movie. I just never watched it all at once because my dad had a philosophy of, like, I'm going to watch this movie. You can be in the room when I watch it and behave, or you can go away. And so I always had the choice of, okay, I'm going to sit down and watch this movie, which could be something like Pulp Fiction, or it could be, Dirty Dozen or Hunt for Red October or something like that, or I could go off and do my own thing. That's how my dad introduced me into um into movies. Um, so and I think this was on occasionally, but I don't think I had any interest in it as a kid. Did mm-hmm. you have an interest in it as a when you were younger? So I much like you, like my oddly enough, like uh I was raised by you know my mom, mm-hmm. uh and but my mom, uh she's a <laughs> To this day, she remains a very ignomatic person in terms of movie taste. Mm. Uh, Cause she'll go from romantic comedies like Moonstruck 
um, oh. to to just straight up, you know, dad movies. You know, the mm. the Sean Connery Bonds. You know, the the uh, the you know a lot of the a lot of Hitchcock thrillers and stuff like that. And kind of uh, one of my entry points into film was falling in love with Charles Bronson. And my mom loves. Um, especially when I was younger, like she, like anytime the mechanic was on TV, she would watch that. Mm. A- any of the Death Wish movies, no matter how progressively worse they got, she always watched them. <laughs> I always yeah. watched them as a kid, even yeah. though I was way too young. And she always talked about, oh, I really, I really wish the Dirty Dozen would come on TV more, even though it came on TV a lot at mm. that time. And uh, I must have been, goodness, um, um, about eight or nine when I first saw this movie, but I, I instantly fell in love. I mean, I, I didn't really, uh, my household was a little different, I guess, because I didn't really have much of a choice. Like it was like, it was either, okay, if you're not going to watch cartoons, you're going to watch my movies. And my mom's movies were all, were mostly old movies. So, um, and this movie was in color, which I never really had much of that, like, uh, uh, black and white this or, or or that disaffection that a lot of kids grow up having mm. but at the same time the fact that it was it, it's such a fantastically shot movie um of an epic scope but it's still intimate with 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 really tough guy characters really struck a chord in me and um obviously my mom loves charles bronson but through this movie not only did I cultivate a love for Bronson, but I, I start to cultivate that love for Lee Marvin, that love for Donald Sutherland, that love for Jim Brown, mm. uh, who, who was in so many great black exploitation movies after this. Um, and it's the, much like with the Suicide Squad, uh, James Gunn's you know, version, um, what resonates with me about this story and why I love seeing pieces of it kind of refracted throughout the times is I just love the fact that it's these 12 guys commandeered by this, you know, also anti-authoritarian leader who's kind of forced to be so, you know, he's basically the, uh, Lee Marvin is the, Major Raceman is the blood sport of the peace. Mm -hmm. And they're all being set into hell by these, you know, these very authoritative leaders who are all skeptical of their abilities and what I, what, and, and, I think one of the most unique, I think the most unique thing about this movie, and I put this on Letterboxd uh, after my rewatch the other night, was uh, it's essentially two movies in one. The first half is a training movie in which the tension comes from, okay, we don't know if the do- if any of the dozen are going to end up killing Major Raceman at any point. Yes. Because, I mean... Uh, I mean, Ralph Meeker, who who plays a, a military psychiatrist in the movie, he he's he mentions in a scene, you know, um, uh, man, dude, these are the most like twisted, you know, pair of uh, these this most twist, twisted group of psychopathic degenerates. Mm. And he he says like one religious maniac, one malignant dwarf, two near idiots, and the rest of them I don't even know what. And yeah. I feel like Soderbergh lifted that for Ocean's Eleven, that one bit of dialogue, you know, the yes. Abosky, Jim Brown, uh, a Miss Daisy, a Jeffro, and the biggest, no, 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 uh, Leon Spakes and the biggest Ella Fitzgerald ever. Yes. And um, another one of my favorites, but, but <clears throat> that's the first half of the movie. And that's so important in letting us, you know, realize 
all of these characters who we really go come to love all these like one of them is a criminal john cassavetes you know uh one of them is a legit psychopath with telly savalas oh he is such a psychopath i just yeah i keep getting surprised at how much of a psychopath they made him <laughs> and and the second half of the movie is is the is the suicide mission but it's also the payoff of all that stuff you mm. see through every individual character reaction of that second half of the movie it's just perfect like i mean it it, it really I don't think a movie like this, even though as much as I love uh, the Suicide Squad and I and I venerated it so hard earlier, um, the the way that it abridges this framework, the, the the framework that Robert Aldrich kind of created with this film, I don't think it would get quite made today or or made as well because you don't get two and a half hour epics anymore about teams. Um, you know, like you, like, uh, again, the Snyder Cut's a different case because it's building off of pre-existing movies, but... Yes, yeah, it's the team movies, are now, team movies are popular, but only because of comic books, the Avengers. They are all pre-kind of thing. You do, you're not going to get like a dirty dozen where it's just these kind of disparate guys who you're not meant to really like, but kind of fall in love with, um, are meant to do this kind <laughs> of mission. Um, so I completely agree with you on that. I don't think the dirty dozen in the way that it is is ever you can't make that movie again because one it's got to be um the justice league or it's got to be avengers it's already got to be a predetermined kind of ip thing with it these 12 jackasses be you know really test you know lee marvin's limits and him constantly you know pushing back against them pushing back against his authority figures and then all of them coming together to push back against Robert Ryan and the other authority figures um, really does resonate with me about this movie. And um, and I think the importance of it coming out in 1967 is interesting because Aldrich as a filmmaker was was always kind of pushing the, the limits of, of Hollywood taste. I mean, this is the guy who made Vera Cruz and whatever happened to Baby Jane, which might be his best film. Um, Kiss Me Deadly, which which stars you know Ralph Meeker, which who's also part of the ensemble, not one of the dozen, but he, he's again he's a psychiatrist. Yeah, and Aldrich was always uh, I think fascinated by pushing the envelope and wanting to tell very psych almost psychologically inducing stories in in the trappings of a Hollywood crowd pleaser, and I think the Dirty Dozen is interesting because he's telling you in very subtle ways throughout the film the, the that the horrors of war are, are ever-present. Um, yes. And you, you get that from the get-go. Um, like, like I mean, just when uh, the, the first couple of times whenever, I think it's Richard Jekyll, um, who, uh, who uh, um, after the dozen are introduced and they're boarding their vehicles uh, to leave for the train cap. Uh, Lee Marvin asked Richard Jekyll, "Like, hey, um, what do you think? Uh, what What do you think is, is what's going to happen?" And he uh. goes, "Well, I, I think you're going to do a great job." Uh. And he's just like, <laughs> "Sir, really tell think? me what do you really <laughs> think?" And he's just like, "I think they're going to kill the major the first chance they get." Yeah. And he's just like, "Okay, thank you, sir." <laughs> <laughs> thank you for your honesty. I already know this. Um, no, <laughs> I think first of all, I think Robert Aldridge is kind of a weirdly underrated director in terms of this tough guy group that we've been speaking of. Um, purely because he is made a whole bunch of different movies. I mean, 
what even happened to baby Jane? Uh, Kiss me deadly. Uh, loses um, uh, whatever it's called. Sorry, I haven't got my notes. Um, uh, it loses Ray. Like he does. Yeah, you're right. He does oh, kind yeah. of push what is good taste within a very much a the longest movie. yard as well. Longest yard. He kind of likes to kind of push the boundaries of what you think is acceptable in terms of psychology and violence, but in a very wrapped up Hollywood kind of package. I mean, you just watch Mary Jane and you're like, whoa, though, but yeah, yikes. But that uh, baby Jane just got into a situation where she does not know to get herself out of. Um, and all the <laughs> thing that goes through. Um, but at the same time, I think he's a really smart director and I think he's really good at characterizations, especially people that might be slightly not as heroic. I mean, his whole point is, that the, I mean, I love the fact that Lee Marvin is just as anti-authoritarian as all the the supposed criminals um, that he's trying to train. And this is 1967, I think Vietnam is just ending around about, I mean, people are still thinking about men being drafted. Yeah, boys are being drafted into, into war and same with World War II, you were drafted to go to, to, go to war at, uh, for a big chunk of the time. And so when you're looking at these criminals, it's kind of like, okay, you've just put these guys in a situation that they probably had did not want to be in. They acted out, someone got hurt, and or you've got just Telly Savalas who's just apparently killing people left, right, and center and just being <laughs> scummy about it. Um, but it's kind of this um sort of thing. And then you've got this guy who's like probably like, oh god, I want to you're you're like, I love when they sort of tell him the mission. It's like, oh, go and kill these Nazis. And it's like, well, that's just a stupid idea. That's just going to get people killed. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, he's very upfront and he's very antagonistic. I love like the line he says to Robert Ryan of like, oh, you're an emotional creature, aren't you? It kind of cuts to the heart of what masculinity is in 1967. And it's all yes. this pot is just boiling up. For people remember what it's like to the drafting kind of thing and what it's like and the whole being put in a situation you do not want to be in but yet making yourself a hero. So you can kind of relate to the Cassavetes and the, and the Jim Browns and, and the, um, and the, and the um, Donald Sutherlands, these kids who kind of just found themselves in a situation where they're just like, well, I didn't ask for any of this. Um, and Lee Melvin's going, no, you didn't, but you're still not getting hot water either. Stop being a bitch. Um, is pretty much the sentiment <laughs> of, this, of this movie. And we're just watching it going, I can't believe John Cassavetes is in Dirty Dozen. I love it. <laughs> Well, that, that's what's interesting. And I think you bring, I think the point you bring up about how underrated and how actually smart Robert mm-hmm. Aldrich is, like plays into that because he lets the actors be, like what we talked about earlier, like he lets mm-hmm. this unique ensemble, this unique kind of cavalcade of different talents, he lets them be themselves. Like you yes. have John Cassavetes, who it, through all of his characters' idiosyncrasies, you know, he emerges out of the ensemble with the only Oscar-nominated performance. You know, yeah. like like he he makes you, he endears you to a character who is a petty criminal, who's an honest to god piece of shit. Yes. You know, he he you know he's he's literally in prison because he stole ten dollars. Um, <laughs> and he's getting hanged for it, isn't he? Isn't he one of the guys who's going to be hanged? Yeah. <laughs> And he and he's laughing and and practically spitting in the face of Lee Marvin until he yeah. has to you know like kick him in the face, and 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 get him in the line. And it, it's such a fascinating performance that he's doing. And of course, you have uh, Charles Bronson, who um, who's playing uh, an ex-captain 
Mm-hmm. Um, like when he's first introduced, like Bronson says, are you uh, a captain? I don't like captains. And then later on, you learn that he used to be a captain. And you have to think about that, especially in, you know, it's a 60s movie that's riffing on the 40s because it's yeah. taking place in World War II. And it's like, oh, like if you were a captain back then, like you, like you were seen as like official, like you were, you were, you, 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 you were the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. And so the fact that Bronson is a dejected, you know, a dejected captain and is still bringing his real life, uh, you know, Polish immigrant background to this character through um, a monologue he says in the middle of the movie, Mm. um, which I think Cassavetes comments on uh, in a later scene than that, um, is is really, really good because you want Bronson to be Charles Bronson. Like that's why you watch Bronson, but you want Cassavetes to fall into a a different character. And, and, And then you have, you know, other character actors here as well. You know, Donald Sutherland's doing his thing, but Jim Brown is really cool because it's one of Jim Brown's first acting roles. It really is. Um, no, I, it, it, like the Suicide Squad, this is a collection of egos in terms of actors and also, more importantly for Dirty Dozen, the actors themselves. I mean, I don't think um, Charles Bronson was quite Charles Bronson yet as he was not the mechanic. He wasn't, um, uh, I can't remember, his, uh, he wasn't Death Wish yet, um, but he's getting there. I mean, Lee Marvin is already Lee Marvin. I mean these characters are still up and coming but yet you can sort of sense their kind of presence on screen I mean as soon as you see Jim Brown you're like oh hello thing with Cassavetes because he's grinning like the Joker um <laughs> the whole entire time I'm just like you are the, you were like an early version of the Joker aren't you um but at the same time um I love the fact that you get occasion you get a few of their backstories and it's Clint Brown Charles Bronson and um Jim Brown Clint Walker and Charles Bronson who kind of had the more sympathetic backstories and that's the ones you really get except for like Cassavetes stealing $10 you find out Charles Bronson's there because he killed the medic but the medic was deserting um and running away with all the medic equipment um he was you could tell well I can't protect my men without the medic equipment so I'm going to shoot you and deal with it um and Jim Brown's a black man who killed someone as part of a racist tobacco yeah yeah Yeah. yeah. it was it was essentially self-defense but they still put him in prison and then poor Clint Walker was the gentle giant who punched someone in because he punches someone it um he killed him um so you get a whole this whole array and then of course you get Telly Savalas like yes I raped and killed a woman because I was called to do it and you're like oh god so you do get this kind of mixture of criminals that are there um who aren't who are more sympathetic than others um and it's I mean yeah Jim Brown's performance when he's talking to Lee Marvin in the in the prison cell is amazing um just the way Lee Marvin's kind of playing with him like yeah because he has no intention of doing it's like why would the hell would I help you I'm in a system that put me in prison for defending myself and you can kind of you can see Lee Marvin kind of trying to convince him well if you kill a whole bunch of Nazis they're the actual bad I mean yeah you can kind of see him needling him and there's a smart way that Lee Marvin knows how to react to the different personalities. Yes. And that, um, that's what makes yeah. him a great manager of egos. Like, yes. like you were saying is because uh, when he's talking to Maggot, Telly Savalas, uh, he's just like, you know, us Southern boys guys stick together. And of course, when he's appealing to John Cassavetes, he belittles him to being that petty criminal that he basically is already. Yes. But before, you know, delivering, you know, the big punchline and then walking out, and um 
it, it's very interesting the way that he kind of toys and plays around with each of the dozen when he first meets them, because they're, they're all understandably so skeptical of this major, but as we come to find out about Lee Marvin, like it's, he's, he's not, he's not the, uh, the typical major, which is what makes him a perfect leader for this uh, ensemble. And I want to go back to Maggot uh, just because I'm curious what your perspective is on this, because I can't think of another character in a sixties movie that is this like right wing, this religious nutty misogynist rapist psychopath yeah i just i just can't think of a character in in this decade that is that extreme but i think the fact that aldrich you know it very wisely contrast the um the various criminalities and and wrongdoings of the dozen with this very just like truly psychopathic character who can be unhinged at any point um he's kind of more or less the peacemaker of this thing um because they're both i don't want to get too political but they're but they're both very extreme in their viewpoints for very different reasons and they and they come very close to fucking up the mission in the in the last part of the movie oh yeah i mean jim ryan has to outright kill him because of it um no it's it's yeah telly savas is a really strange character because he is so most of the time you get those kind of very right-wing very religious very kind of misogynistic kind of characters they are often um, kind of like, uh, say, Charles Bronson's Death Wish character, as he was kind of like three, four, and five, where he's the ultimate, he's kind of the hero, but because he's the canon hero, he's that. Um, yeah. And I say this love the death, I whatever, <laughs> except for two, I love all the Death Wish movies, um, even parts of two I like. Um, and, and they're all they are the sanctimonious, I know I'm right, I know I'm pious, the good intent the 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 paved way to hell is always the, the highway to hell is always paved with good intentions or that kind of character and then you see kind of what's actually underneath Tali Savalas is just like a oh no this is me I am a ultra religious character because I like raping women and now I can but if I say I'm religious and it's a calling that's my justification for it but he's not actually hiding it and it's fascinating mm-hmm. to watch um him and he's part of the, he's very much a part of the group until Jim Brown decides that he needs to be taken out because he's just too much of a lunatic. Um, it's, he's just this kind of, no, this is who I am and I'm okay with that. And it makes him even creepier, but the fact that he is still as much as the part of the group and as he is, yeah, gives this kind of really weird dynamic to what a prison is. I mean, you have the people who probably should be there, the people who really should be in there. Um, and that's kind of the group that they've just kind of just scooped out a group of people not really con- concerned with who they are or what their abilities are. It's just... From wildly different walks of life. From wildly too. different, completely different walks of life. Um, and, yes, yeah, so you sort of get the sense that this is, I mean, even Lee Marvin goes, and they're talking about Savalas in particular, so why didn't choose this? We're not going to kick him out because he's part of the team and that's still going to ruin the dynamic. I have to work with what I've got. Um, and, yeah, and Rick Flagg makes that same thing when they find out Nathan Fillion can detach his arms and bitch slap a person. Um, and that's what TDK stands for. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it's, it's kind of it's that kind of thing. He's just going, well, he's part of the group. I have to use him um even if he's gonna balls up the whole entire mission in which he does um 
it's yeah it's kind of this very he's very a creepy element and because he's telly savalas he just does it in the most telly savalas way which he goes gives it 100 percent um which is why i love him as an actor because everything he's in he's just like going hi i'm telly savalas you may know me from um kind of actor but he really just dives into the creepiness of the character and he's not there's no fear of like oh no this is going to perceive me as a horrible person it's like I'm playing the worst person in the world and you are still going to enjoy it because I'm Tally Savalas. And I'm like, yes, Tally Savalas, I still like you on screen, though that character wigs me out. <laughs> there, there's sense. a magnet. Oh, yeah, totally makes sense. I mean, there's a magnetism to even, uh, I mean, Robert Ryan, who I'm also a huge fan of. Mm-hmm. Um, like, uh, he's, he's typically, Robert Ryan's interesting because especially in, in, in warm, in, a lot of tough guy movies and that kind of thing he's usually cast as like the the villain and, mm-hmm. and if he's not the villain then he's usually cast as a very very flawed anti-hero yes and here he's not the villain per se because they are training to go up against nazis in the last half of the movie but he spends uh the movie kind of as the the main face of authoritarianism um alongside you know um ernest borgnine and uh um God, I forget the actor's name. Um, um, it's Ernest Borgnine. Um, it's not. Uh, it's not Ralph Meeker because he kind of is, but he kind of is more interested in the men. Like he's kind of. Yeah, and- he's he's assessing the men, and he's he's more or less on Lee Marvin's side. But there's another actor who I'm not as familiar with. I, I apologize, but that's cool. Uh, there's a lot of people but, in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's. I, I'm surprised at the the names I'm recanting, but yeah, again, I've seen this like so many times but but the point I'm making with that is um the the ways in which uh, the ways that the dozen goes from um they go from banding together just over an absence of hot water and then them having to play the role of um an army group with a general and how Robert Ryan's guys like uh, he literally commands two of their guys after he's he's pretty much embarrassed by Donald Sutherland hey beat uh hey go beat you know uh vladislaw like go beat him up in the bathroom and figure out like what's going on yes and that's one of one of like the first times you really see the dozen come together and man like i mean for one thing it's it's cathartic to see clint walker and you know um you know jim brown you know come into that bathroom and just like take those guys on but for 1967, that's actually a, a pretty good fight scene. It's um, really I'll, good fight scene. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, like um, I think it's Clint Walker who like literally like puts his helmet down and the guy punches it. And it's just like, oh, and then you see the, the grin on his face. <laughs> Jim that, Walker like, literally rams a guy with his helmet into a wall. It's amazing. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. That that part is so good. And, and the movie is... I mean, that's the thing about this movie. It delivers the action you want it to. It has all the character stuff, but it's also this radical uh, middle finger of sorts to a culture of, of a culture that really didn't know what to do with the men of the era. And no, that's, a, that's and epitomized through Bonnie and Clyde, through Cole Hand Luke, a lot of the movies that came out this year. Yeah. You know? I mean, you know, no, that is a really good point because again, I this always happens after a big war has finished. I mean, you're probably going to see movies a lot like this after because um, all the America, Britain, and everyone else was pulled out of Af- Afghanistan. 
And then it's okay, what do we do? And you already see a little bit of it. Okay, what do we do with these men? It happens after World War One, we see it after World War Two, you really see it after Vietnam. And this is kind of one of the first movies to go. So what do we do with these these misfits? I don't know. And you put them and yeah, you're right. 19 movies from the 1967 is just absolutely full of it. I was just looking it up before going, oh my God, this is a year. I mean, yeah, you're right, mentioned <laughs> Bonnie and Clyde, which is um won the Oscar, which is the which is amazing, but you also have Heat of the Night, The Graduate. Yes. Um, you've got um, your Bonnie and Clyde, uh, The Producers, which is very much that kind of, oh, yeah. um, what do we do with these? Like, it's a very kind of um, thing. And it's got all these kind of movies about these. It's, again, trying to figure out where these guys kind of fit. It's a weird time. It's all these weird, these outsider men fit into society. And this is the Dirty Dozen. Because um, these men do not fit into what is expected of a World War II soldier who are meant to be the manliest of the manliness. They are the greatest generation. They um, yes. did things that no one can imagine. But this is wasn't exactly true. They were just a lot of scared men, and especially probably very young in their twen- early 20s, sent off to a war and gone, here you go, go kill some Nazis. And they're like, what? Um, and that's kind of reflected <laughs> in these guys. Um, but the fact that you get, because I always get the feeling that Lee Marvin's being punished for something um, when he's given this, um, when he's been given this um, mission. Assignment, like, yeah. Assignment. It's like, yeah, you, we, we kind of hoping you don't come back. You're, you're a pain in our ass. So we're just going to give you this awful mission to see if you, and if you kill some Nazis, great. If you don't, maybe you won't come back. Um, and I think that sort of speaks a lot to kind of this, this sort of outlaw kind of feeling. And then, but he kind of manages to rally together because I love that fight in the bathroom. It sort of reminds, I mean, the whole Robert Ryan thing reminds me of, because the first half of the movie is a hangout movie. You're just hanging out with these guys. Yeah, it's, that's it's, a good point. And it's really, really great. And then when they get to the whole thing where they go to the parade, uh, the parachute kind of thing, Robert Ryan reminds me of every single antagonist out of every single 80s movies um, in terms <laughs> of Police Academy and, oh, we must control the misfits. <laughs> um, and he's ever wearing sunglasses and trying to get the band and like, not yet. I'm coming out just to see where they are. Stop playing. Um, it's kind of this, the snobs versus slobs. And Ryan, Ryan Roberts is definitely the snob. He doesn't, he's obviously knows there's an operation he's missing out on. He wants to figure out who these guys are. Um, Robert Sutherland playing the general is hilarious and going, where are you from? Oh, somewhere in Ohio. Yeah. I've never heard of it. And it's <laughs> looking Lee Marvin's face is like, oh God, you little shit. Um, it's kind of amazing because they're play acting this authority, which they don't they don't believe in in a second because they know it's all just pomp and circumstance. And yeah, it's got that kind of thing that 80s comedy went, oh, that we get what that is and just ran with it. And so, yeah, you can see these different parts of it, but I love how much of it's a hangout movie, even when the fact that Cassavetes throws a tantrum over the cold water. Um, and then they're like, well, you know, and of course, I love how Lee Marvin's just like, well, you're not shaving then if you're going to throw a tantrum, then I'm going to treat it as such as a tantrum and we can all get dirty. <laughs> but but the the brilliant, you know, grin that he has, like when he goes back into the room, uh, yes. when he goes back and, and he talks to Ralph Meeker and Ralph Meeker's just like, what did you just do? Like, that's that looks like a mutiny. He's just like, dude, that looks like they're becoming a team. This is what we wanted. Yeah. And and again, it's, it's Major Raceman is this masterful, manager uh well he's he's a he's he's both master and commander if you will mm, like where yes, 
he he has to think on his toes like mm-hmm. he and he both outwits the robert ryans and the george oh, the george kennedy that that's why i was oh, thinking yes sorry george sorry. kennedy yeah because oh, george kennedy falls in love with those boys he's and he ends up helping them <laughs> yeah no he ends up helping them and, and i love that section of the movie because the movie pretty much becomes a heist movie where it's a, a lot of the dozen you know uh, you know playing different you know roles having to having to miss uh misdirect a lot of robert ryan's men yeah to finally prove to these stodgy authoritarians that hey like we're a team and and we finally have found our voice and and at the same time not only is aldrich kind of giving this vietnam malu to the greatest generation that you were talking about mm. earlier but he's also his movie is also indicative of cinema finding its own identity after yes. the studio systems are, are starting to go out of favor and the the Alan the you know the Alan Ladd Juniors and the the Daryl Zanics are kind of making their transitional points um, you know the the Warners if you will so it's a very discordant time for cinema and Aldrich was so hip I mean this is the man who gave us Kiss Me Deadly an atomic film noir like mm, how yes. how like how gnarly <laughs> is that you know and he's and here he is like making you know one of the first real action movies you know before the the contemporary explosion so and I, I so i don't think it's it's super out of the norm to even think that robert ryan's character is is a precursor to the slobs versus snobs comedy villain because he just everything about this movie just seems so modern and i feel like that's why in the in the increasing the increasingly you know bigger and bigger onslaught of war movies out there this this movie really does continue to stand out because it it really does again for all these reasons that we mentioned like it, it captures um such a a weird point in time um uh, at the time it came out and also the time that it's playing around with while also giving you that no holes barred just like gritty you know uh, adventure movie experience that makes it entertaining and, and rewatchable yeah, because when you're watching, when you look to see the movies, and this is one of the movies that came out in 67, you're really like, oh, America's kind of losing the Hollywood system and it's kind of catching up to what Europe's been doing for the last couple of years. Because I was on a podcast, uh, uh, Brett Peterson's um, old one, um, where we were talking about the movies of 1966 and how all our favourite movies from that year were foreign language. It was what Japan was doing. It was what Europe was especially doing. Um, and it's kind of this thing in 1967 you can actually start to see them go actually there's some so interesting stuff and yeah they are pushing boundaries there's you know sex nudity violence all this stuff um but we can do that too because we don't have that's when the haze code is really falling away and the violence in the dirty dozen can be upsetting even though they are nazis the whole idea of them in a locked in a basement with grenades yes. being dropped down is such a horror it's actually kind of a horrifying thought um, even though I know I'm, I don't, they're Nazis. They're the worst people in the world. I don't necessarily care what happens to them, but since Aldridge is showing you their fear, it's kind of horrifying. Um, I don't know how else to explain it because it is. Well, it's all their screams being edited together at once. Yeah. And, and the reactions between the characters where even after everything that they've done, cause this is after, you know, Donald Sutherland's been, been shot to death. And yes. 
Tosa Falls has is slain at this point. Yes. And they're and they're getting Jim Brown to be to be the guy to drop these bombs and 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 they're everyone else is pouring the gasoline. Uh and it's just such a, a harrowing moment where it's like, oh, this is Aldrich showing us that war is hell. War is the violence horrifying. is not pretty. And and it's not a it's not a um, it's an amazing set piece on a technical level, but in terms of the enjoyment, it's not you know the Suicide Squad going up against a giant starfish. It's literally the lives of these people, um, even though they've they've you know even though they're tied to uh, you know an interminable amount of atrocities, hmm. you know the fact that these people are are, are that's how they're going to die is just. It, it, it's a uh, it's it's very conflicting and and the placement of it you know near the end of the movie to where you have no choice but to think about it you know sometime after the movie ends I think yes. that that's that's really that's really what what it uh that's really when it goes into to brilliant territory and um <clears throat> I have to elaborate on that because uh in uh in the in the special features on the blu-ray to this um there's a there's a whole documentary where um there's a myth uh, the documentary talks about the myth that happened where um i can't remember if, if aldrich got nominated for best director at the oscars that year but mm. lo and behold um he fought uh mgm to to leave that scene in because uh, I, I believe that scene's in the book that that this is based on and oh he, yes yeah and he he wanted to keep that in and he was like no like the whole point of this story is that like like these men live ugly lives and they die by ugly lives and hmm. ugly decisions you know like like I, if i take this out then i ruin the point of the movie and hmm. the studio was just like hey we we gave you this amount of money to make this big action movie there are these a-list stars that we're giving you like if you if you don't do this we don't think that you'll win the oscar hmm. and so depending on you know where your tastes fall if you you know if you prefer you know the graduate if you prefer it uh, um in the heat of the night etc either way the the myth from uh, posited by this documentary you know states that because he left that scene in and stuck to his integrity then he they ended up never winning the oscar that you know he probably deserved for other films and and, and not just this one but at the end of the day it was a stacked year but at the but also um i i wholeheartedly respect Aldrich's decision to do that because again if you were to make this in a in a modern action movie context especially if if this was attached to an ip then uh then you would not have a scene like that no because it's not just the nazi officers it's also their mistresses or their wives i'm assuming it's the mistresses because they're all kind of having a party and hanging out and i'm assuming it's all their mistresses but it's kind of, you feel sorry for those mistresses. Yes, they're dating. Yes, they're with Nazis. But a lot of the time in Europe, it was very much an, an economic decision more than anything else. And, um, oh, yeah, Aldris wasn't even uh, uh, nominated for Best Director. Um, Mike Nichols for the graduate one, by the way. Um, but um, it was, yeah, you can kind of see because it's such an ugly moment because you're seeing what this actually involves. And the fact that they see it coming, they know exactly how they're going to die. It's not like they're in the house and then it blows up and it catches them by surprise. They're seeing those grenades just fall into that little trap and then the gasoline coming through. And they're, that's got to be terrifying. And they are horrible. They are connected with some of the worst atrocities in the last hundred years. 
but at the same time, you're in their point of view. And I think it's a really smart decision that he yes. made that because it's showing, Ultras are always showing about the ugliness and about humanity. I mean, you go back to Baby Jane, um, especially um, Kiss Me Deadly, which is, Ralph Meeker's character is essentially a pimp in that movie. He is constantly getting his secretary to sleep with men in compromising positions so he can, and it's more in the subtext in that movie, but that's what essentially what he's doing. Yeah. And then it ends with this nuclear holocaust at the end. You're like, what just happened? Um, and then also in Baby Jane, you're getting this thing between these two sisters where the ending of that movie is always, always going to happen. There was no way that um, one sister wasn't going to die or at least one of them was going to die. The girl was going to kill each other. And so much like that. I mean, you're losing his raid is all about you know, tracking down uh, these Apache uh, raiders and some of the racism that's coming out of the men's mouth. Yom, I don't, I don't think that is a normalizing thing in his movie. I think he's meant to show you, oh, this is ugly. Everything that is happening is mean and ugly. And the character who's meant to be the faithful kind of God-fearing um, leader is is horrible and does not and kind of loses his head in moments and it's Burt Lancaster that's kind of like well this is how the world is the world is ugly the world is violent we did great violence to these people and they're doing it back to us it's not like a um a, a thing that is you know it, this is just the way it works um and it's kind of brutal and the dirty dozen even though it is so much fun and you love a lot of these characters and you're sad when Cassavetes and Brown um and Donald Sutherland because he's a baby in this movie die um <laughs> you're sad but at the same time this is war this is the realities of it we've just lived through another big war we've seen the devastation that comes from it because they've come home um and with that it's also much as a generational thing it is oh, a totally, totally. yeah I mean, you can see that between Robert Ryan and the soldiers and Lee Marvin I mean the Lee Marvin and the Dirty Dozen are the younger generation coming up and Robert Ryan and Ernest Borgnine are the older generation who's in charge. And we keep seeing the cycle happen, happen again and again. <laughs> that's a good point that I didn't even think about. And I don't know why I hadn't before, but that, that's such a good point where, yeah, like all the authoritarian characters are, are older, essentially. And it's, yeah. George Kennedy is, is the one character who's kind of turned. Yes, um, and he's, he's the of, younger one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's the younger one who kind huh. of sees, oh, like this is what I don't have to exactly do like, heroics for me isn't what these old guys are doing you know no. these old men and you know the flat the, the also the fact too like <clears throat> to see trini lopez as a part of this cast to see jim brown as a part of this cast you know for the time that's that's about that's more diverse than than you got out of a, a big budget movie like this that that's oh my, hollywood produced yes yeah and, it's yeah i mean Robert Aldridge was part of the old guard, I guess, of directors. He was one of the big old noir ones. He was 50s, 40s and 50s. He was one of the big directors. Um, and then he comes back in the 60s and makes this radical 1967 movie about war, but in the most popular way possible. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's an amazing magic trick. Oh, it is. It is. I mean, um, I mean, he is one of the progenitors of, of the film noir as we know it. I mean, he did the the big knife as well. Yes. Um, and And just so many... So many iconic, you know, films and, and westerns and that kind of thing. In fact, um, 
Yeah, I actually, uh, I hadn't never heard of Ozana's Raid until you 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 mentioned it in this episode. Now I'm like, oh, I need to check that out because that sounds so good. It's <laughs> so good. It is so mean though. I'm just watching, because I watched it yesterday because I'm like, I'm in a more, I'm still in an Aldridge move. What? Oh, here's, what's this? I'd heard about it and I'm watching it going, wow, this is mean. It is so cynical. It's 1972, so it fits right in that. Everything's busted to hell and nothing's going to fix anything um but some of the characterizations of it and it kind of has a um a lot in common with say the searches if everyone was a horrible racist except for Bert Lancaster <laughs> the other way around like in the searches um and and even in that movie um I mean Robert Aldrich did make a movie in 1956 called Apache which I think had Bert Lancaster playing in Apache which okay it's 1956 but he actually, um, yeah, again, he had um, Latino actors, play, which is not as good, but it's getting better. We can have Native Americans playing Native Americans, please. But he had um, a really strong thing of um, uh, Latino actors. So he, he is a kind of a old school director who actually does care about diversity and um, that kind of thing within his, his um, movies, more so at the time than anyone else is doing. But it's, um, no, it's, it's fascinating. And he just, there are so many layers to this movie because I was sort of watching it going, oh, it's much more straightforward than Suicide Squad. I mean, they're just, their mission is literally to go kill these Nazis over there. But then when you actually <laughs> dig into this movie, it's like, oh no, it's actually just as messy and complicated. And that's where the brilliance comes in. Um, because literally what Aldridge and the writer, screenwriter and everyone else is playing around with these characters. I mean, this cast is huge. It um, is. It is massive. Oh, and... Uh, offside George Kennedy actually won Best Supporting Actor but for Cool Hand Luke for Cool okay that's right yeah. that's right yeah yeah and he yeah. gave it out Cassavetes um, that was a stacked um, supporting cast actually um, John Cassavetes <laughs> Gene Hackman uh, for Bonnie and Clyde Bonnie um, Clyde mm. uh, Cecil Calloway for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner I need to watch that movie again because I oh, don't wow. know who he is um, and Michael J. Pollard for Bonnie and Clyde I mean that's just the um, Best Supporting Actor <laughs> No, that's that's an insane year and, and a definitely insane category. Oh um, my actually everything is insanely stacked. I mean, best actor actress, Catherine Hepburn wants the guess who's coming for dinner. Um, Anne Bancroft, <laughs> Faye Dunaway, Dane Edith Evans. I don't actually know who whispers, that's the one movie. Audrey Hepburn, wait until dark. <laughs> oh yeah. Wow, wow. See, I had no idea uh, Audrey Hepburn was even nominated for that. I'm glad Neither she did was. I. That movie's that movie's amazing. But that movie, um, yeah. I mean, it's just um yeah you're just looking at some of these movies going holy hell I mean um yeah you're just looking at some of the movies that were nominated I'm like oh yeah the 1968 actors was a great year and everyone won was winning different categories I mean Bonnie Clyde won best movie but Mike Nichols won best director and then you have Rod Steiger winning for Heat of it like everyone was kind of given an award going yes you realize this was a good year <laughs> you get an Oscar you get an Oscar like it's you that get an Oscar. Yeah, like, <laughs> like when they always give best one of the best writer ones to one of the directors that they know should also win best, like like Quentin Tarantino winning best uh, original script, um, Jordan Peele, um, Jane Campion. There's a few ones I'm like going, oh, you yeah. got the writers as like the consolation prize for not winning best director. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, especially like in regards to like uh, Peele and Campion, or or like especially Jane Campion. It's like yeah. you've really been putting in the work for so many years, and here you go. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I actually just uh, 
as a bit of a side note, I just got into Jane Campion uh, the past, like this past year. And literally she's so amazing. Like I, I love her so much. I've just been getting back into her because I had to, well, I, I don't know, I had to um, watch the piano in school to study. And there's only so much of high, high cartel shalom you can handle when you're watching the piano and trying to actually get at the, trying to study it for an essay. Um, <laughs> but um, just because any award, any kind of movie that became international success in New Zealand, therefore became studied, except for Peter Jackson's earlier movies. Uh, Heavenly Creatures was definitely another one of those. Um, but yeah. it's, yeah, I love Power of the Dog. It, it's an amazing movie, though I cannot think of that movie other than this is a New Zealand movie because that's Central Otago. That's not Montana at all. Um, <laughs> I know those mountains. That's, that's not what you say it is. These are, these are not American people. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's 1967 was one of those transition years, and I think they just went, oh, the hell with it. The, the studio system's gone. We've got all these, let's see what these auteur directors can do. And you give Robert Aldridge to what he wants to do on Dirty Dozen, you get um, Arthur Penn to do what he wants on Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, Mike Nichols on The Graduate. Um, the, the heat of the night when you're actually, you know, talking about something other than just the murder mystery because you've got friggin' Mr. Sidney Portier um, giving yeah. a line, re- giving a line reading so well, that's what the sequel was called. Um, they call me the <laughs> um, That's true, yeah. Yeah, I just rented that. I'm like going, is this going to be as good as Heat of the Night? I don't think so, but, you know, it's Portier. Um, yeah, it's just, it's part of, it's kind of, when you look at when it was put out and when it was made, um, it's kind of the meeting of the old guy and the new because Arthur Penn, Robert Aldridge were older directors, but they were finally directors that were kind of given, kind of like Don Siegel in the 70s. Oh, you can make things as violent as you want now. You don't have to hold back. Yeah. Which if you've ever watched a 1950s Don Siegel movie, you know he didn't really hold back. But you can now just <laughs> go for it. Um, and then with those guys and Arthur Penn made a movie that people complained was far too violent, even though I'm like, I'm making a movie of Bonnie and Clyde. How do you not make it violent? um and that's true yeah yeah and then you've got mike nichols coming up who is gonna well he's mike nichols and all this other kind of stuff and yeah it's well pushing pushing censorship in ways that even billy wilder wasn't able to do with the graduate and he did some wild stuff i mean oh throughout his whole career like that mike nichols alone like that's that's interesting trajectory to go on um and and i think the thing about the 60s too that i think kind of makes it kind of a perfect connective decade as well as that um you know like guys like you know the Hitchcocks the Billy Wilders the uh um you know the the Orson Welles uh, people like that they're still very much around during that era but like at the same time by the time you get to that 1968 60 60 69 Mm. like kind of that that one-two punch you start getting into the wild bunch and Butch Cassidy yeah. and, and uh, um, the demise of the MPAA, like literally mm. like it ended in 1968. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And that's so, when I think the Hayes code officially was over. It was in 1968. Yeah. That's when they couldn't sort of say, Oh, you have to do this. It'd be whittled away and whittled away. I mean, to the point where it was kind of useless. And then in 1968, they just went, ah, fine. <laughs> it's not doing <laughs> well, it, anything anymore. <laughs> And, and through that rating erasure, you in 1968 alone, you get kind of the redefinition of, of two genres. You get the redefinition of sci-fi with mm-hmm. 2001 and Planet of the Apes. And then 
with with the western with once upon time in the west and all of these movies are these weirdly paced you know the the classics and and you look at the cinema after that and that's where you get into like the Bogdanoviches and the Scorseses and and people like that and and I think and of course they influenced Tarantino and to wrap this back around you know like Inglorious Bastards you know you cannot have that without the Dirty Dozen because that title is stolen from uh an Italian movie of, of of the same name that in and of itself was made to be a remake of the Dirty Dozen so it's just thank you Robert Aldrich for inspiring Tarantino that's all I have to say uh, yeah that moment, <laughs> oh my god that moment after you have the whole Hans um Hans Langer whatever is uh Lando um but end and then you get to get the thing and then you just see Brad Pitt coming out doing Lee Marvin it's just more like a hallelujah moment just like yes <laughs> <laughs> it's so good it's so good and just the way he does it it's like yes you've seen this one movie now go into this movie and it's um it's absolutely glorious yeah I mean the dirty dozen has such an effect on on movies on television on how we I mean probably that the great escape probably because it's about five years earlier um as well um those kind of movies influenced a lot that happened in the 70s and how masculinity was redefined how action was redefined how um how you do action um like Frankenheimer Sturges and Aldridge are kind of the early action directors of um especially the Hollywood kind of thing of no, we can actually do this. And like, uh, Frank and I was like, yeah, I can totally blow up things in France. It's fine. We're going to do it. I've tried oh, driving yeah. through it and have these explosions. Um, yeah, John Sturges was very good at action and Aldridge was amazing at it. I mean, those sequences and the, and the Chateau are incredible and visceral and violent. It's, you don't know necessarily where to look. And it's, yeah, it's kind of, he's actually going, okay, this is what it would actually kind of look like. It's scary. It's loud. People are dying, and we don't get the chance to grieve them. I mean, when Donald Sutherland is killed, um, he can't do anything about it because Donald Sutherland's just lying by the car, and and Jekyll's just kind of like, "Well, I can't go and help him. I can't do anything because I'm sort of under attack." Or is it because it's Cassavetes that dies in the car at the end? It is. It is. Yeah, he's just shot. Because he's because he's he's cheering. He's like, "We did it. We did it!" And then all of a sudden, just. A, a bullet goes through his head and it's yeah. just like man oh and everyone just looks at him and goes ah and because there's nothing they can do and that's kind of what happens in war these people who you form these relationships with and Cassavetes was kind of the glue because he kept riling up the other men he was kind of the glue that kind of kept them together and he's the to- reason that the team has their name you know exactly like, he, like, like you know he was the one who um, used to wash so they're the dirty dozen <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah and 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 the fact that he goes from you know being this this two-bit criminal you know mm. who you know is is in prison for ten dollars literally you know to to wanting to antagonize lee marvin and, and almost escaping and yeah. endangering the rest of the team to being the glue that holds them together and ultimately mm. dying i mean it, it is a complete arc it's not a happy arc nope but that cyclical process epitomizes all of the 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 harrowing heroics that that is this movie and uh, i mean i mean so many of the members like go out you know so just so horribly but also so nobly i mean Hmm. uh i love uh i forget the actor who who does this but 
when his arm, no, 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 his leg is 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 thrust through the ceiling. Oh yes. And yeah. he, and it's it's up to him to throw the throw the grenades. And he finally he accepts his fate in such an interesting way, in such a and I think kind of a cool way where yeah. he throws the grenades and then just puts his his head down because he's just like, well, here you go, you know. And, and it's just and everyone looks on the explosion that surely kills him and 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 they all pause for a second they're just like oh man like we we really like that guy and yeah that, that feeling parallels through every other death from that point i mean to me the one that hits me the hardest is jim brown I yeah because because literally everyone is cheering him on and i and again i've seen this movie so many times like i i can't even count and Every time that scene comes up, I'm much like them. I'm like, I'm cheering him on. I'm, I'm wanting him to just, please just finish throwing the bomb so you don't get shot. And then this, this, this freaking Nazi comes out of like left field and shoots him to death. And, yeah. and you feel that anger whenever they mow him down. But it's also just like, yeah, you killed that Nazi who killed your friend, but your friend's still dead. Yeah. And, and it leaves you feeling empty while also having you reflect on on war you're happy that the mission was more or less successful depending on where your perspective is but at the same time ultimately this is about the team and you miss the team at the end of it and that i think is what aldrich was trying to do in this movie and 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 what um i mean he he was more or less kind of kind of playing around the same formula with the longest shard the original film and um uh, the Keanu Reeves movie the the replacement which was the movie I have a lot of affection for mm. uh um it kind of plays around with the 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 longest shard version of, of this story mm. but again that, that's the that's that connective footprint of what the dirty dozen has left on pop culture on cinema on I mean really just just everywhere I think uh yeah I think I think I'm happy that you 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 refer to this as one of the the greatest films ever made uh, because it, it's it's it, you know it's it's a movie that I hold very sacrosanct uh, with so many memories attached to it. But going back through watching it uh, last night, like literally, I, I I was just like, man, this movie does everything right: the directing, the the writing, the performances, the music, the the action, the tension. And I just cannot think of anything that um, not even, you know, another Maverick like James Gunn can, can top it. So James Gunn can't, because I think James Gunn likes to be a little too much of a little shit sometimes. He just likes to step <laughs> on things a little too much. Um, Robert Aldridge is a craftsman and he made, yeah, you're right. Everything about this movie is correct. Every, the tonal switches are great from it goes to comedy to drama to war, to, yes. you know, you're having your gut pulled out because you've gotten to know these guys and you have this really cute moment when they're building up their barracks for the training and they do a reverse um, Buster Keaton. So instead of the house falling through over Lee Marvin with him in the doorway, they build it up and it's like a really cute moment of everyone just like going, hey, and <laughs> Lee Marvin rolling his eyes at them. It's, and it's kind of got these really cute moments. Again, it's got the kind of goofball bit with uh, Robert Ryan, and, but then it's, but then it ends on the such hollow note of them in the hospital and Lee Marlin saying, yeah, those who survived should be having their presence, their presence. I recommend to have their prison sentence muted. And it's literally just Charles Bronson. <laughs> this 
who's the only prisoner who's actually survived because Jekyll is their guard and Lee Marvin was also not arrested. So it's just literally Bronson. And then you find out, yeah, he's going to get released and he's going to go straight back into the army. And the look yeah. that they give each other when um, Borgnine and Kennedy um, make her leave the room is just of almost like a eh, same shit, different day kind of thing. It's just not... <laughs> It's not going to end. They just risked their lives, lost most of their unit to do this one thing that was literally just to probably kill Lee Marvin in the first place. They got to congrats. It's like, well, see you on the battlefield. We're going to send you out to die again. And they... It's, it's almost futile, like the way that they, that they... That they The looks that they give. There's so much pathos in, yes. in the looks that they give each other. And it's just like, dude, we... It's 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 like Groundhog Day. It's like it's gonna be all over again, yeah. and we could die. We could possibly die in our next mission. Yeah. Um And uh, in fact, <clears throat> bit of a <clears throat> bit of a question I have to ask. Sorry. <clears throat> um, have you ever seen the next mission, The Dirty Dozen? Uh, no, I was going to ask you the same thing because I didn't realize they'd made two more movies. Um, but I haven't seen the next mission and the other one yet. Have you? I, I have. I, I saw the next mission a long time ago. It's actually a special feature on the Blu-ray. Uh, oh, that's a, I own it digitally. This is the perfect reason to get the Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it, it comes with the Blu-ray. It it is. Uh, it's not very good because <laughs> it's a bonus feature. <laughs> yeah, it, it it which tends to be the case with these kinds of things because it, it's a TV movie. It came out in the eighties. I want to say mm-hmm. um, again. I saw this like way back in high school. Um, uh like because it, it was i think it was playing on tv one day and i was like oh mm. i love the dirty dozen i know they had a sequel and yeah. um it you know lee marvin returns as the same character but he's visibly 20 years older trying to play like he's the same age he was in 1967 <laughs> oh no <laughs> and and ernest borgnine returns to it as well mm. um and and it's them getting a team together of guys who just don't have the same spark it, it it's very much like um like like we talked about on cobwebs most recently where mm. we talked about the the remake of the philadelphia story it's very much like that where yeah it's watchable at best but i think the the magic of of these actors and aldrich's direction and the time this movie was made is just gone by sequelizing it so, mm. yeah. no that makes complete sense because this there are so many movies that are happy accidents like we you mentioned ghostbusters i think a little while ago and you can't okay even um you can't make another ghostbusters as much as i enjoy two like three haven't seen four um that movie was an accident you are never going to replicate that um kind of even though i think the dirty dozen is much more thought out and much more um intentional there's something about you're never going to get cassavetes just because he hated being on screen was always so angry. I mean, I, 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 I like the fact that he was nominated for Academy Award, pissed him off. I just, I, I don't know if that's true. I just like the idea of it. Um, I mean, you've got, to, you, I mean, when are you going to get like Charles Bronson, Tally Savalas, um, these kind of group of actors at this moment in their career when they can kind of realize they're part of an ensemble to do that again i mean okay well, actually i like this the magnificent the magnificent seven but that's again good ego management um and well and in, in in 2021 if 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 the dirty doesn't came out in 2021 i think what would literally happen is that maggot would somehow survive being shot by jim brown and mm. he would have a tv show being made by james Gunn. <laughs> yes 
that's the that is the the era that we're in it just yeah is. everyone gets the redemptive arc and Maggot didn't deserve to get omega didn't deserve to get the redemptive arc because he's literally a psychopath who first thing he'd gotten he did when he got into the house was i'm going to kill a woman um they were going to kill those women to begin with but they were going to be it was going to be done in the correct way not have him being more sleazy and attack and enjoying it and know, enjoying like, it you're not meant to enjoy it they're doing it because it's their job he's going in there going ah hello i'm going to enjoy this um and, and so yeah. her into a knife you know yeah. into her torso like it's just dude you you that's the moment of the movie where it's like okay dude you you've got to go like you you, yeah. you can't do that you know no. and jim bram walks in and shoots him and that's exactly what happens um and yeah you're right because everyone has to get their redemptive arc and there has to be the spin-off and yes this is not new because they did obviously try and do another dirty dozen and got a very probably older lee marvin and ernest bergman who were well in age by the time you get into the 80s <laughs> um bless those guys um and it's not going to work because by the time you get into the 80s action is a very different beast um this is your yeah. schwarzeneggers your stallones your bruce willis's your big big kind of action it's the Not, guys inspired by the Sturgis's and the Aldrich's exactly and the, uh, the yeah. yeah exactly if you're going to do it you need to do it kind of like James Gunn does as yes Peacemaker gets his own show and gets a redemptive arc <laughs> but um it's doing it still in a different way with different personalities with different egos different kind of setup and suits and the Suicide Squad suits um the blockbuster landscape because it is just as science fiction as it is comic book as it is a man on a mission movie it's all those things amanda waller makes more sense as the robert ryan character um i just elba makes more sense as um the uh lee marvin Marvin kind of character it's kind of you can't just remake something you have to give it a twist that makes sense to modern audiences who don't know the dirty dozen um and i but who may go back and go, oh, that movie's based on The Dirty Dozen. What's that? Um, like a whole bunch of people started watching movies from the late 60s after Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because they were like, hang on, yeah. who's, the, who's, the second, who's the second best Western director? And hang on, who's the first? Ah, let me introduce <laughs> you to a little uh, director called Sergio Leone, one of the greatest directors of all time. But um, yeah, it's that kind of thing where you have to kind of make it relevant to the it has to be a piece of when your time you're making it is what i was saying and dirty doesn't it so fits into the climate of 1967 it's being anti-authoritarian and authoritarian at the same time which is a really hard trick to pull off i mean my god alders that is a fine line <laughs> oh it, it totally is it's a it's, it's a fine line you know and and yeah it, it's a fine line he walks it with a plob and that's yes. really what it comes down to is um I think ultimately the biggest, one of the bigger differences of both of these films that we're talking about uh, uh, today is that the Dirty Dozen, the stars are on that poster, you know? Yes. And versus the Suicide Squad, where much like Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, there's a few stars here and there in that cast list, but really the star is James Gunn. It's mm. James Gunn's show. But James Gunn has enough of a humil- of humility beneath all of his you know, him being a runt, him being a stinker, him being a maverick mm. for the mavericks that came before him. And yes. I, I love the fact that he, um, even though I didn't see a trailer for the Suicide Squad, again, having to reiterate that, 
the moment that he tweeted uh, the summer before this dropped, you know, the, the poster that was, was visibly, it didn't look like the neon explosion that was uh, uh, the, the, the first movie's poster. It looked mm-hmm. like a straight up 60s, you know, war movie, a war caper film, as he put it. And I was like, okay, dude, you are, you're going for one of the greats and you're, you're not only are you going for, because uh, I believe he was going, he took a lot of inspiration from the 80s run of the comic. Um, yes, yeah. And it, and, it, and it shows, it's a very 80s feeling movie at points. Oh, very, yeah. Um, but he really did go for that caper vibe that you really don't get in Lodge Day's movies. And being such a big fan of this era of film, especially this era of action film, um, I I was suckered into it. And considering just how, just... And, and again, I, I will continue to, to do um, re-examinations of, of DC properties the, the more that they come out, but um, it, felt, it felt to me like it was a DC movie for me. And that's why I wanted to talk about, I wanted to use this as an opportunity to talk about um, not just my perspective on it, but to talk about just one of the great American films and one of the great action films and really expose more people to a double feature that they might not know otherwise Hmm. so thank you for that no and it's a thank you for suggesting it because I think what it does is people know the Suicide Squad and since the Suicide Squad is such has indebted to the Dirty Dozen I mean yes 80s as well very much so um but it's very indebted to the Dirty Dozen and you can tell that that was on his mind when he was making it more so than just the first one um that's it's kind of a cool thing to look together because they have same bones but completely different movies um and it's been a joy to talk about so thank you so much for coming on with this double thank you for having me no this has been absolutely great and i bit a link because it's been thing. oh i didn't realize what the time was as usual um but before we go um what uh please tell people where they can find your good work oh thank uh oh definitely um so i am on twitter at p-r-e-s-t-o-m-i-t and then I'm also uh, on Letterboxd at uh, P-R-E-S-T-O underscore M-I-T-C-H. Yeah, and please give him a question to follow. His letterbox is great, and so is his Twitter. And as I said before, if you haven't heard him on Cobwebs, please go and listen to that because that is an awesome show. Speaking about another classic genius, the Preston Sturges, um, who is one of those other game directors speaking of pushing boundaries. That was definitely him as well, that and Ernest Lubitsch um again thank you so much for coming on this has been an absolute blast um i can't wait to have you back on for another double um i know you've already said some other movies you'd like to do at one point i'm like oh yes please <laughs> um <laughs> so yes um thank you again for listening to shock and all this has been a lot of my details I forgot uh shock and all one at instagram and twitter if you want to follow me it's just reading geek on twitter and also at letterboxd um thank you so much for uh, for listening this has been an amazing um episode i always enjoy talking to you and again it's been great um and yeah we will be back with another double feature all right thanks guys bye